podcast time. Hi. With my shishi. Shishi number two. Well, number one. I mean, it came first. Number one. Podcast number two is sissy number one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Thanks for doing my first video podcast. I know I dropped that on you last minute. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Which is probably nice. Yeah. I uh, After the first couple, I don't know, I just... Some there's some podcasts that I watch slash listen to that it makes a big difference when I can watch them. And I mean, sometimes I you can't sit down and watch them, or you know, if I'm listening to stuff and I'm working out or something, you just can't watch. But when I can, especially some of them, I just feel more of a connection to the people who are on the podcast. And I know I really like it, and I just I wanted to have that. So glad that you're willing. You're welcome. <laughs> Should we give uh, some intros? Uh, who are you? Why are you here? And you can answer that in whatever way you'd like. Also, here's a foot thing. If you want a foot thing, it's kind of comfy. Anywho, I probably won't. Probably okay. won't use it. I'm gonna sit like a small child this okay. entire time. Anywho, Brooke, sis, sis, yes, uh, Brooke, Brooke Cantwell. I'm here because I am visiting for several weeks from Idaho. Yeah, with you, fam. Few yep. kids. Yeah, with family. Abby. Yep. Are they here? Uh, stepdaughter is 16. She'll be here next week. She's coming for half the time. Son is 14. He has been here since mid-June. And then my four-year-old daughter came with me. Nice. On the red eye. So you and I, let's give a little backstory to our relationship because it's fun. Um, arch enemies, maybe, as kids? How would you describe it? Uh, I get, well, like under 10 maybe or under eight. I don't know. I thought we were besties. This is news to me. Wait, as kids? Yeah. (laughs) You have scars from me scratching you. I do remember scuffing up your soccer ball. Yeah, that's an epic story. Oh, I'll never forget in the basement (laughs) and you holding it. And this is like a, (laughs) this is not a kick it around the yard soccer ball. This is from England. I brought it back from England. And you're like, I'm going to drop it on the cement. And I was like, if you do, I don't know what my threat was, but I attacked you after you dropped it. I don't remember either, but I'm pretty sure you also provoked it. I'm sure it wasn't Mm. whatever. Oh, undoubtedly. The story doesn't start with you just menacingly (laughs) holding something that's important to me. (laughs) I guarantee it was my. We were vacation buddies though. Yeah. Yeah, we were kind of kindred spirits. I think I think even as kids, we had stuff that was, you know, in sync more than, you know, than Sam and Mitch, our other siblings, had stuff that, they would, you know, they connected on. And then just as adults, when I think we, I matured. I mean, I was the youngest, and we have, what, four years between us? Five years? I'm 31. Five years. Yeah. Yeah. So as that became, you know, less of a factor, and I matured, then I think that we realized pretty quick that we were going to be super close, so. Yeah. I didn't even like Sam until she didn't live in our house anymore. Yeah. We were not even frenemies. Uh, no. <laughs> what was the contention between you two? Um, I was very black sheep child of the family. Mm. Like first one to leave to question the church and want to go to other churches and did not follow those rules and chronic curfew breaker, mm. stuff like that. And she one time <laughs> gave me... It was like a four-page handwritten letter about how I needed to read my scriptures and pray and, and like, get myself to rights, basically. (laughs) So she was super self-righteous. Question is, is was she right? No. (laughs) (laughs) She apologized years later. 
How does that compare to my letter that I wrote to all the siblings about how terrible of siblings they've been to me my whole life? Well, you didn't write one to me. So. Oh, oh, was it just... Was it <laughs> I was the only one who didn't get a letter. Or like, uh, mine was really nice. There was nothing uh, <laughs> in it. So when everyone was like, oh my God, I'm like, uh, what? That was so sweet. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that about adds up with uh, our relationship. Um, anywho, we have matching tattoos. You can show everybody. Yeah. Oh, that, that's hard for you I to... Know, it's all. Yeah. I get mine touched up. I haven't had it touched up even once. I so. haven't either. It still looks pretty good considering, I mean, 10 years ago, right? 12 years ago, probably. Yeah. I'd be better if I hadn't gone hot tubbing hours yeah. later. Oh, I forgot that you did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So diving into things, um, totally open format, like I said, but... I was reading up on um, neurodivergence and mm-hmm. kind of what that meant. I thought it was a way more complicated topic than it was. Like when you said that when you were texting, I was like, I, I, I'll have lots of questions. I probably won't have much to offer. And then realized that like that is a broad term for, I, I don't know, you, you maybe explain it. Just kind of kick off like what's your interest in it and what does it mean? What is yes. neurodivergence? Yeah, super personal. It's the only reason why it matters to me. Um, so my son has gone through... I guess probably childhood trauma be considered. My ex-husband is mm, in prison. <laughs> not really sure where to go with that. That um, usually says enough. <laughs> if you're like, my, my, it's complicated with my ex, and it's like, what the fuck does that mean? You know. But if you're like, he's in prison and he's yeah, been in there for a while, will probably been in there a while. People are like, all right, he's all gonna right. serve his full 15 year sentence, <laughs> and a couple of years he'll be done. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, but he starting at about age four started having these epic meltdowns mm. like not and you talk to other parents are like oh all kids do that and I'm like I've never seen a kid do this mm. and be so strong-willed and uh, and then when he was about uh let's see entering third grade he stopped sleeping so I thought it was just a summer to school thing but he was up all night and he'd gone through a phase like that when he was about two where he would just he was laying in his bed. He was trying to sleep, and he just was wide awake. So wow. same thing through third grade. Um, and then we had a day where everyone needed to do chores, and he was like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not. And we're like, all right, you can sit on this hard wooden kitchen chair in the middle of the dining room and just wait then while the entire rest of the family does, thinking, like, you're going to get tired of sitting. Three hours. Wow. And he was like, you done yet? <laughs> I don't know how to deal with this. How old was that, you said? Starting third grade. So I think eight. So, eight. I mean, what he's kind of realizing at that point is like, I don't actually have to do anything no when somebody tells me to. Him do anything. I mean, I didn't realize that until like 24, you know, so. It's super hard. For me, a light bulb moment was um, I have a sleep disorder and um, done enough sleep studies, so I know a lot about sleep. I get annoyed when I see, like, here's why sleep is important. I'm like, oh, shit. Um, <clears throat> stop targeting me. I already know. <laughs> but my nurse practitioner from that office was like, well, um, why aren't you like, – did you choose not to do ADHD meds? Like, I don't I don't understand. Why, why would I – What are you asking? Yeah, me? Like, I don't understand the question. She's like, I'm very sure you're ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, why? And then she listed off just, like – 10 things she's observed just mm. from my just discussions with her and just how I behaved in her office during my appointments. And she was like, yeah, that's leading to some of your exhaustion, your ADHD. Mm. 
was like, oh, okay. Um, but women, girls are not diagnosed with ADHD because they are not hyperactive. They are not disruptive right. in classrooms or with parents. So if I look back at my childhood, I was the daydreaming kid who stared out the window all mm. the time and didn't hear people because I wasn't, I was so in my head and constantly making stories in my head. Like I lived in this whole other world and then I came back when I had to and I didn't get noticed for school stuff either because I was smart enough that I didn't really have to pay that much attention. Yeah. I just picked it up. Like even through high school, I, if they still had the same attendance criteria that they do today, <laughs> I would not have graduated, <laughs> but it didn't really matter. You didn't get detention for being late or not attending school. Just yeah. two parents got called. So I still barely graduated. Um, that perspective but I didn't I just didn't have to I didn't really have to pay that close attention and it focusing was very hard and, and then I went to college and I still passed all my classes but like I <laughs> remember driving a paper I went to school in Ogden driving a paper down to my teacher's house in Salt Lake City in Sugar House because I hadn't turned it in on time like I finished it <laughs> pretty much and I don't I think I read the book and then I wrote the paper. Well, yeah. So, and then I still got approved to skip up to upper level grades because I would meet with the teachers and show my work. And I was like, this is a waste of time for me to be in your class. But next to Mitch, our oldest brother, who is type A, can study for hours. And that was really hard for me to be in college because I knew I needed to study. And I had maybe 15 minutes max. And then I'd be reading a page and get to the end. And like, I have no idea what just happened and yeah. I can't focus on it anymore and I can't force myself to. So college was, would have been a lot easier if I had known back then. So I got diagnosed at 28, started HD meds. I was like, is this what life is like for people all the time? Things into order and focus. Yeah. Like you can sit down and just focus on this one thing and finish it. And you can have other thoughts come in and you can choose not to think about them. You can choose not to go off and do it. And my husband, too, could tell after a while, like, you forgot meds today, yeah? Mm. So he'd be like, well, I walked into the kitchen and the dishwasher was open and pulled <laughs> out and half loaded, but you're upstairs folding laundry <laughs> or, you know, going off and did something else like, oh, I forgot that was there. Or, I, yeah, I was doing that. And yes, I did. Um, so then once I started learning more about it, I started paying attention to my son, Kieran, who is a mini me in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I was like, bro, I totally see. I mean, he has a little bit more, he's super chatty and he is in a really good mood and stuff, but he needs you there to help him stay on track and he'll get distracted just in a conversation mm. with you. So it was, he had a lot of those things that were hard that I was like, I can connect I, with them. Yeah. Like yeah. I totally see what's happening and can understand that now that I know what it is, and what to look for. So his started with ADHD. Um, and then there was a mood disorder possibly and some super severe behaviors that just didn't make sense. And no, we saw psychiatrists and psychologists and children's specialists and trauma specialists and no one, everyone was stumped. Like they mm. could get a little bit further with him and they were just like, it just doesn't match anything. I don't know. Um, and the one that he saw the longest after a while was like, 
he said something where he's like, have you ever, has he ever done autism evaluation? He said, no, he makes eye contact and has conversations and he's always been super verbal from the time he was very young yeah. and speaks like an adult. I remember him being four and just being like a folded arms and, <laughs> you know, like, well, I really think that if the world economy, <laughs> that is you him. need to spend less time with your grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's totally him. Um, so no one ever thought about that um, and went and <laughs> he did an evaluation with someone who I don't think knew what they were doing because they said, he's not even ADHD. He just has anxiety. Mm. And I was like, you don't know what the fuck <laughs> you're talking about. <laughs> I am not paying for this. So ended up going to a manager <laughs> where they went through. Uh, but I did just finish uh, the book Neurotribes, which I think is mm. great for anyone who's interested in neurodiversity. It's very long, but very interesting, basically the history of autism, which opened my eyes even more to what a spectrum it is mm. and how different it is, especially between men and women, and why women are often not diagnosed with it, and how it were women are usually diagnosed with anxiety, ADHD, bipolar, um, or mood disorders, depression, because there's women are a lot more conforming. They pick up the masking behaviors faster and understand what's expected of them to blend in and socially acceptable. Uh, so it's hard also to get diagnosed because you've been doing all of these social behaviors and everything your whole life. And I, as I went through it, it's like, you know, I just thought that I wasn't very funny because I don't really understand when people are joking, but I can't. I usually can't tell if you're being serious or <laughs> if you're making a joke or being sarcastic. Which is funny because in a lot of ways you're very perceptive of people and situations, but it sounds like in that way specifically pretty blinded. Yeah, especially mm. at work. I have a work is where I usually just don't comment. I don't participate in a lot of those because I'm like, ah. and then I just wait for the cues for everyone else. <laughs> I'm like, I don't. Wait, can I ask you something? Uh, that's mm -hmm. interesting because... <clears throat> I feel like when I was growing up, I had like a pretty wild sense of humor and like was constantly making jokes and everything like that. I, I don't know, pretty balanced in that way. But then as an adult, one of the things that I, I would probably say if I had some clear insecurities, it was like, I just felt like I was getting less funny, but not just that. It was like my, my whole personality was shifting in a way where my, I was just not interested in engaging in funny conversations. And it's different if I'm like hanging out with friends and like we're drinking and like the whole vibe is just like we're just bullshitting but what I, it got to this point where I was like confused by my friends who we'd be in a relatively serious conversation between two or three of us and then one of them would randomly crack a joke and I'm like like I'm kind of annoyed and I'm kind of also like totally caught off guard and I'm like I are they joking or are they serious and everybody else can kind of tell that they're joking or can tell um, but I'm just like I would never even think in a million years in that situation to make a joke. And sometimes it's really funny and I'm just, my brain doesn't even go there because it's so focused on just like the rest of the elements mm -hmm. of the conversation. Do you experience that too? Or Yeah, I, us I usually can't tell. And I am very serious too. I don't consider myself fun or very playful. I can be, I think I can be funny and I do like playing around, but I definitely mm. don't do it at work. Uh, and I've had to practice a lot. I mean, I had a manager once that I just go straight to business. Like, let's take care of business and then we'll chit chat and whatever That's after exactly if we have time. And so I'd launch into be like, and how are you, Brooke? Like, oh, 
<laughs> Great. How are you? Forgot the thing that I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Let me engage, I guess, on the human level when I just want to handle business and move on. But Okay, it, sorry, follow up question there, because I this is really interesting to me. I've found that with uh like my teams that I manage and things like that, I'm much less interested in them engaging with me in like a sociable way or social way versus from my boss. If like, if I get a message from my boss on like Monday morning, it's like, Hey man, how was your weekend? And I'm like, and I, I know them well enough that I know that's not just them mm-hmm. playing, doing the niceties to lead into. I need this from you. I like that a lot. Cause I'm like, Oh, I feel like I have somewhat of a personal relationship with my boss, which is valuable to me. And I, I want that with my team as well, but it's more so I'm just like, let's get down to business with my team uh, to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, is that the same for you or no? Yeah, my my boss is the perfect manager for me because I believe he's received the same feedback I have in the past. <laughs> I know for a fact he has because he told me he has. <laughs> so it's funny to watch him develop and he'll be like, we, and it is at the end of the conversation, generally there's a first check-in, you know, especially last two years of like, how are you really? Are you okay? Um, and then at the end, uh, at the end of the conversation, it'll be a kind of check in like, you know, how was your weekend? Unless there's something about it that's funny and I've noticed him trying to engage more on it, but I don't need it and he doesn't really need it. And it's fine. Like I'm perfectly yeah, comfortable with it, but I have heard I had someone on my team say, you know, the first, you're the first person I've ever met who really liked working with him, who had no, like it didn't make you anxious or anything. And I'm like, I don't know if I believe that or if I'm just the perfect person to work with him because we're on completely the same wavelength where we are both busy and we have things to do and also have enough trust that if I needed something or I know I need to support or feedback, it can be honest about it and have a real conversation. And then he will also show up if I need him to. Yeah. Uh, And it's always a last resort. So I don't need, I don't want to talk about the weather. Like, you're going to make me vomit if we say one more thing about the weather and that's all anyone has to do. But versus I do have some colleagues that I meet with regularly have one-on-ones with that I am actually friends with. Yeah. And so there's more conversation there of ask my other families and stuff like that. That's a good clarification because the, the team members who I feel like I haven't made a connection with and I can tell that they're sort of trying to force it because they're like, like big boss guy. Like I want to make friends with them and it feels more like a political thing. I'm like, grossed out by but the ones that I obviously have a natural or have you know had experiences with and work together for a while and we have that connection then you know I relish in hearing about how they're doing and want to make sure that they're doing well because I really care about them and everything um oh man that's funny um (laughs) so my my current boss I would say like I I think that he wants to just do the business talk but he also has learned and probably been told that like he should do more with his teams but the nice thing is, is that because I like can pick up on the fact that like he doesn't give a shit about that stuff, then I have no problem with, you know, he'll ask, how am I doing? I'm like, great, man. Anyways, you know, just dive in. And sometimes I feel like I can see a sense of relief because he's just like, I don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. But I remembered it because I was trying to think of what I was going to tell you, which is the way that I found to deal with people who ask me nonsense questions, especially at work that normally I wouldn't want to answer, is I just talk about whatever I want to talk about, which like... I'm not hyper extroverted anymore. So it's not that I just love talking, but like I had just a call earlier, you know, and somebody was asking me like, you know, how are you liking Florida? And I just, I've, I'm, I've had to practice it, but I'm getting better at just being like, 
what do I want to fill this space with? <laughs> and I just talk about whatever the fuck I want to talk about. And it's great because the problem happens when, when you don't like small talk, people want to engage in small talk because you feel trapped. And you're like, I'm stuck here. I have to do this thing. But you don't. It's like filling space. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, there's some times where I'm just like, man, I don't want to talk to you or I don't want to talk about this or anything. But yeah, I just was like, I don't know. It's been weird. Like, you know, and just started spouting off about random shit. But it was like stuff that I was interested in. I just didn't care whether or not they were interested in listening to it. Because I'm like, you asked me a bullshit question, so I'm going to give you whatever I want. But I don't know. You might have to try that sometime <laughs> if you have somebody that you know is going to do that to you. It's const- It's gotten worse, I think. Mm. But especially because we're trying to merge two companies in two different locations. And we don't. it's not going great. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's culture clash. Major and all culture kind of stuff. clash. Yeah. But I, I am still thinking about your comment of, in a serious conversation and someone cracks a joke, I wonder if you are not picking up on clues that someone is feeling uncomfortable. Ah, yeah. It's often, usually people will do that. They're trying to create a sense of levity to lighten the conversation or create mm. a break because they are uncomfortable with how serious it got or the direction that it's going. Totally. A- absolutely possible. Probable even. Um, and then the question is, and like, thankfully I have people around me who are very perceptive and they're also, uh, they also know, that I can tend to be blindsided by that or blinded to that a little bit. And so they'll give me an honest answer afterwards of like, yeah, that person was not interested in having that deep of a conversation about that thing. Um, but anyways, um, the question is, is like, was it a me thing or was it a them thing? Like, is that person generally just totally uncomfortable with deep conversation? At which point I'm like, I kind of want to go deep with them constantly just cause, um, <laughs> who you are. uh, yeah. You know, or was it like, they clearly were like antsy to move on to something else. And it was totally my bad of like, I just should have picked up on that, but I don't know. Anyways. So you were talking about autism spectrum with Kieran, your son, your own experience. Yeah. So kind of fair with him where it's like, I don't really, I don't know that I believe that he's on the spectrum, but more I learned about him, like, yeah, he probably is. I probably am too. Um, Cause it is such a spectrum, which also, has been interesting just because I've gone through a lot of trauma therapy and a lot of psychotherapy and EMDR. And Kieran, we've seen so many different people and all the different, here's how you parent and here's, you know, reading behavior and all so, so many that I find myself using it at work as one of my strongest <laughs> skills, which is, <laughs> it feels hard or rough to say of like, I'm going to parent people at work, but but paying attention, like I can tell when I walk in a room with Kieran, like now is not a good time to engage with him or there's definitely something up. And he's crazy perceptive about my feelings and emotions. And he also cannot read people's emotions. He cannot read facial expressions very well. So he well. can read yours and pick up on yours, but not other people's. Yeah. Okay. Super attuned. Like I will just walk in the room and he'll be like, why are you upset? <laughs> like you are sad. <laughs> like damn son i'm not sad about anything we're talking about you know and sometimes he's wrong he, when he reads anger he usually reads it wrong he interprets mm. things as angry but when i'm upset about something he usually can tell that i'm feeling down or going through a depressive episode or something he knows um, but he cannot tell read other people's emotions even when he is standing there having conversation with them will be like 
that person was very bored. They were done with what you were talking about and or they tried to change the subject multiple times and he just is so focused on what he wants to talk about. Mm. Uh, which is great because I have now realized when I do that sometimes mm. or I'm looking for like I'm in, and our dad does this as well of, okay, I'm done with that conversation that you're having and I'm just waiting for an opening or looking for a space where I can turn it into a conversation that I'm interested in mm. and something that interests me and have to try and really hard to listen to the boring stuff that you're saying about a topic I don't care about, usually something that's more high level. Um, so, but that has been really interesting to watch at work and learn interpersonal dynamics. And most of the time, um, it's a little bit harder when it's just audio or over a Zoom meeting or something, especially people don't turn their cameras on because there's so much physical mannerisms that people do. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, it's really interesting. And ma masking how you sound is the easiest of like the, you know, ways that you give off signs, right? Like you'll give away just sagging in the face, showing that like you're drained or tired or emotionally exhausted or all kinds of things, but you can make your voice sound like you are perfectly happy. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, totally. So as far as, you know, both yourself and Kieran, it sounds like you probably ended up doing autism testing with Kieran. Yep. He, so the, uh, the Asperger's diagnosis doesn't exist anymore, but mm. for people who are familiar with that or the older versions of it, how it's evolved over time, he would technically be in the Asperger space. So of a spectrum from there's levels of severity based off of how impactful it is on living a neurotypical life. That's how everything is measured by. Um, and he would be on the high functioning side. Okay, so really quick, just to give context to people who haven't read anything and we don't want to make them do that. What is neurotypical? What does that mean? What does neurodivergent mean? Give sure. us just a couple of things. Yeah. So neurotypical would be a typical brain that has no deviations. So the average person, average behavior, I think it's getting a little bit more rare <laughs> to yeah. have someone who's straight neurotypical, um, but no depression, anxiety, ADHD, autism, any of those things that actually change the chemical, the chemical makeup of your brain is different. Um, might have a chemical imbalance or just the actual functioning of your brain is different. Neurodivergent is a blanket term to cover all of the spectrum of different things that make your brain function differently outside of that sort of normal physiological functioning, how it should work. Perfect. Something I was thinking about as I was reading about this beforehand was like understanding that there's a difference between in a particular situation and acting out because of, you know, the elements that are, are at play versus you are predisposed due to your neurodivergence to react and, you know, uh, you know, neurodivergent way. So like <clears throat> if you're in an extreme circumstance and you act in an extreme way, it doesn't mean you're neurodivergent. Um, but if like, you know, uh, the opposite would be a good sign that you are. If you're in a relatively calm, quiet place and you feel extremely anxious and like the sounds are freaking you out and feels like it's too much, but everybody else is fine, you know, and I'm giving a very mm -hmm. stereotypical just example, but I have a really good friend of mine who we do this thing called landlocked where we all get together and in a gaming in just a house and, you know, game and just hang out and stuff for, for several days. And we have really deep conversations and she, um, like, uh, and I think that she, I, I don't know much about the Asperger's like not being a, a thing anymore, but you know, it has been tested in, um, some form of very high functioning autism as well. And she's just learned, she just brings, she has a really great noise canceling headphones. And it's funny cause we'll be in this big living room with like 20 people. 
everybody just talking and like all these conversations going Nightmare on. Situation. And she, well, no, but she just, she's sitting there with her headphones on, can't hear a thing, just on her switch, just playing Tetris. And it's amazing to watch because she just, she knows like I'm at my limit, like there's too much going on, you know, and then she'll disappear into her room for an hour or two, maybe take a nap or something or just be fully, you know, uh, removed from what's going on. And then she comes out and she's just like a social butterfly. And I like, I love seeing that because <clears throat> the thing that's really sad is when somebody is experience like experiencing a ton of confusion and misunderstanding about like, why do I feel like I can't make this situation work that everybody else seems to be perfectly comfortable in? Mm -hmm. And they feel like they're just a freak and I don't know, broken in some way versus the opposite, which, you know, like my friend, they just understand that like, this is what they need and that's totally okay. They don't have to be on type A, sociable, all these kinds of things all the time. They can take time to themselves to cater, not even cater to, but like, um, you know, take care of that part of themselves that makes it difficult for them to be in that mode all the time and then come back and feel great versus just struggling through it all day and then they're exhausted at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And being themselves up, going through, I, a lot, for a lot of um, ADHD years and I think autism as well, especially if it's undiagnosed, it's you're so smart. You're so smart. You're so capable and you have so much potential. Hmm. You have so much potential and you're wasting all that potential. So I struggle with that forever of knowing I'm super smart. I should be able to do these things. I should be able to finish this. I should be able to accomplish more. I am not fulfilling my potential, the things that I could be doing. Why can't I just do it? Why can't I just do it? What is wrong with me? I'm mm. failing at life. Mm. And, I, and I feel like that's a struggle for everybody in the sense that, like, you don't want to let yourself fall into a pattern of, like, oh, I've accepted that I have some things that are harder for me. So now every time something that's hard for me comes up, I just give myself a pass because... You know, this is probably just one of those things. And then you, you all of a sudden you're not going anywhere and you're not doing anything challenging because every time something comes up, you just, oh. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, not beating yourself up over like, look, <laughs> I, I've identified that these certain circumstances or situations are really difficult for me and maybe much more difficult for me than for other people and that that's okay and balancing that out because I think it's really easy to slip into just giving in to, oh, well, this is hard for me because of this thing. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Yeah, and yeah. I think there's, to the self-care of understanding what you need and why that's really hard for you, and then how do you handle that and what are your thresholds? So sometimes it might be, okay, I have enough bandwidth or I have enough in my bucket filled up that I can go and do this, or here's what it's going to mean after. Like, I don't mm. go to Costco. I love Costco. I'm very pro-Costco. <laughs> I cannot handle Costco. <laughs> okay. Like if, so I know if I am choosing to go to Costco, I am also choosing to be wiped out for the rest of the night. Wow. And I will have no more energy. I'll be done. Yeah. It's just, I don't know if it's the, I'm not sure exactly what it is that it's just so big and so much going on and just the overstimulation of the place. I don't know, but yeah. I can't, can I handle Costco? Um, and my husband loves Costco, and so he usually goes to Costco by himself. Perfect. Um, which is fine. I'll help you unload. It'll be great. Or if we go together, he just knows, like, I'm going to help you unpack, and then I'm going to be done. And yeah, you kind of be a slug. Like nothing else. Yep. I've, I have one more thing I want to bring up on this topic and then get back to you and Kieran because there's stuff I'm curious to explore there. Um, but, uh, of course, and I just lost it. Um, shit. I can't remember. 
uh, I guess it'll come back to me at probably the, the worst moment, but, um, oh, I was going to say that it's funny how, and this is a common comparison nowadays. This is nothing novel, but physical ailments, you know, somebody who has recently had surgery or even years ago knows that they have damage in a joint or a limb or whatever. Nobody's going to be like, why aren't you out there trying to run a marathon? Like a little bitch, you know, <laughs> nobody's mm-hmm. out. If you explain what it is, but with, you know, mental illness or, or just, I guess I, sh- I shouldn't even say it like that, but just neurodivergence. I'm really liking that term. Um, now that I really understand what it means for the most part, uh, it, it is much harder to perfectly wrap, you know, a wrapping around it and, and understand it and everything like that. So it leaves much more room for interpretation and misinterpretation for sure of what's going on with somebody. But like if you at your worst moment and best moment can acknowledge to yourself like I have realized that I have a hard time in this situation and maybe you understand why maybe you don't but like you can be like it's okay if I'm not as great in this moment as maybe some other people perform I think that is always better than sitting there just feeling like shit about it and beating yourself up self up over it understanding can come with time and exploring that I think there are countless examples for myself both big and small where I was just like I can't understand why this is so difficult for me or why I just feel this like push away from doing the thing that everybody else says I should be doing, like going to college. I did one semester and I was like, I can't do another semester. Like hold a gun to my head. I'll do it outside of that. Like I've got to explore another path. I just couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly why, but like, God, I'm so glad I didn't. It just, Mm -hmm. as soon as I made that decision and Steph and I packed up, we sold all of our shit. We sold the speakers out of her car. We sold like the, my watch that was like a hundred dollars. I mean, nothing crazy. We sold everything that wasn't nailed down just to be able to afford to move back to Utah County to where I could go to UVU for a semester. Cause I couldn't do math online. I needed to be in person to learn from a teacher and we make the move. And then I was like, I don't think I can go to another semester, mm-hmm. but I was just like, I was like, I have to, it's what I'm supposed to do. And when I accepted that I wasn't going to, yes. it was like, Oh my God, the overwhelming, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Thinking about it, sense of relief from that decision. And then you're like, okay, something about this was right for me to make this call. Um, But we should let ourselves get to that a little bit sooner, you know, Mm -hmm. before we make all these dramatic, either self-abusings or I don't know, self-abuses or or other sacrifices before we let ourselves realize like, okay, I need to give myself more grace in this area or I need to choose a different path or whatever. Yeah. And I think society is still catching up on that in a lot of ways. I'm seeing a resurgence of bachelor's degree required Mm. MBA strongly preferred when, I mean, someday I might want to go back to school when it doesn't really matter what, what I get. I just like to learn. Same. But I've also realized that I do not care if you have a degree that does not tell me if you learn quickly and if you're agile. And that's what I need for most of the people who are on my team. And those are the skills that I value in myself of, I love to learn things and I love to research when I'm interested in something, I hyper-focus on it and I want to know everything about it. And I have these weird niche little expertises that (laughs) have built up over the years, but I know that I can learn anything I really want to learn. And I know that I'm capable of picking it up quickly. And that skill has transcended jobs and companies and roles and served me incredibly well. I think much more so than that I had. And because I still have a wide breadth of knowledge, which you also get from your generals in college. But if you don't really want to be there and you're not really paying attention, 
Yeah. It is not serving you later. It's not helping you at all. So I think what's important is that you were able to channel your ability to learn quickly and some of your skills that might not be on paper or something people see right away into tangible success where there are a lot of people who are very capable. I'm thinking of one friend in particular right now who is just like, I don't know how to help them. I know how capable they are. I've seen them blow me away in situations where I'm like, I don't know how you figured that out, you know, but then you just get to know them better and you're like, wow, you're really good at, you know, but they're very neurodivergent. They're, mm-hmm. Very atypical in how they approach a lot of things, but they have had it reinforced since childhood. Like, you're weird. You don't, you're not normal. You don't conform. Um, you know, there's, you have all these problems, all these kinds of things that, and then they haven't seen as much of the success from either a job or friendships or, you know, whatever it might be that has given them what you just described of like, I, I think that's given you a lot of confidence knowing, okay, I may not be a, on paper, you know, as, as strong, but like, I know that I can leverage these skills of mine into very tangible forms of success, which gives you a lot. And it's really hard when you know nobody convin- can convince you that you are any better than you can convince yourself of, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can try to help prop people up until they see self-evidence of it and then they convince themselves of it or just come to believe it. But it's so hard when you see somebody that's really capable and they haven't just seen it themselves for whatever reason, whatever's holding them back. And you're like, fuck, how do I help them? you know, get to that point, like you've gotten to, it sounds like. Yeah. I think there's some pivotal, like I vividly remember, um, a colleague training me how to do something that just, it was not that hard. And, you know, she showed me once I did it once and I had it. Yep. Good. We're good. I, I have understand from now on. And she's like, Oh, like really? I don't, I mean, we can go over it again. I said, I have it. I don't, we're good. She's like, you learned that really fast. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, you're nice, whatever. <laughs> and then I had to train someone else to do the same thing about a month later, and it took forever. I took mm-hmm. showing multiple times and having to follow up again. I was like, okay, well, maybe maybe she's right. And I, I'm just used to being able to pick stuff up really quickly, and I just assumed that basically everybody could do this, yeah. could figure this out or pick it up or learn this quickly on it I did not realize until I started paying more attention that no not everyone can do that that is a different skill set um which can make it hard to work with people because they get impatient and I have to remember yeah that I need to just show them multiple times or plan on it if I can just prepare ahead of time that I know I'm gonna have to show you this a few times but I also it's your job it's your job to remember. It's your job to tell me. So I'll ask people, how do you learn best? What's your learning style? Yeah, that's awesome. Tell me up front. Don't waste my time having me show you something in a way that you don't learn. Yeah. You're not going to understand. That's kind of what I was going to say is that I've learned that if I have prepared all the resources for somebody to be successful and I can tell they're not electing into leveraging those and it's laziness over challenges, no patience, you either figure your shit out or I'm not going to spend another minute on you. But like, especially working for startups the last, I don't know, four or five years or so resources are razor thin, which when you're at a, especially an early stage startup, you're hiring people not for what they have on paper. Typically it is all about the grit and like willingness to self solve and figure stuff out. Um, But you'll still fail at that sometimes and have people that early stage, you need them to be very, you know, flexible and dynamic and agile, like you said, and they just, you know, they're struggling, but I'm like, if, 
if you have effort that you're clearly putting into it, like I'll put in the effort to build out the resources if you learn more slowly, but you're willing to go read through this doc that will walk you through it again. And I try to teach that to people that I'm working with too of like, come to me with a solution, not a problem. And I will always help you with anything in, in between those two points or help you figure out a better solution if you're not sold on what you have. But when people come to you with a solution, it's like, they're like, hey, here's the problem I'm facing. And what I think would be the best thing is this. And here's why. I'm like, you've thought this through. You've spent enough time on it that it's now worth me spending my time on it as opposed to just like, please fix my problems for me. That I can't handle. Yeah, I also self-serve, man. Yeah. But I think that's also because that's what I do. Mm. I I do not want to have to sit with you and have you walk me through it unless absolutely necessary or we need to have a discussion. And then I want it recorded if I have to. I'll never go back and watch it. But the comfort that's there, <laughs> you know, is helpful. I might reference it if it's very complicated. But otherwise, I would much rather go out and find the resources or read through it or watch the tutorials or yeah. even my four-year-old's likes watching tutorials at this point because we do it together. Uh, um, she just knows that I'll just learn everything about it on uh, my own. So it's hard for me to understand when I know that all these resources are out there. You could figure it out if you wanted to. You could take initiative if you wanted to, and you just aren't, which is not fair because there are a lot of people that that would be really hard for. They just don't. They're not wired that way. Mm. Uh, but I have a hard t- harder time understanding that yeah i have to remind myself well i I think as well too i i always give somebody like that first shot at you know maybe nobody has ever explained to them why other people don't want to help them maybe nobody has just candidly been like you never try to figure it out yourself which makes me feel like i'm always solving your problems and you're making my life harder instead of us you know working together on a solution which are two very different experiences and so but if i sit down with somebody and i'm like listen I will literally work 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, whatever, spend all my extra time helping you as long as you are willing to do these very basic things of what I expect, which is what I just explained earlier. And if they connect with that and they're like, yeah, like I, I'm interested in bettering myself and I don't want to, you know, I want to value your time and make sure this is a relationship where we feel like, you know, it's mutually beneficial or at least we respect each other's time, then great. And if not, you know, then that's where I'm like, Mm, soft pass like if somebody else can help you great if not like I'm, I'm just not gonna waste my time so but um awesome tangent i do want to find out about like more especially like um get, you've alluded to it sounds like you you're either somewhere on the autism spectrum or think that you are i'm pretty sure i am okay yeah no no formal testing though Mm-mm. okay so two two questions one is the, the asperger's things that you thing that you mentioned where there's like no formal like diagnosis for that anymore? What is that about? Yeah, so it's absorbed into the autism spectrum. Okay. And it has a lot to do with politics. Um, Asperger was a psychiatrist who started a school in um, the country that starts with the letter A that's near Germany. Austria. Thank you. Uh, And the entire school years later and university that he worked for was taken over by the Nazis, and he remained so not an outward blatant allegiance to it, but called into question years later and all of his, his work was never translated out of German mm. um, and was kind of buried. There's a lot of a lot of political agendas and things between different researchers that really muddied the waters and set us back a lot on mm. understanding autism and what it really looks like. So kind of more recently 
Asperger's syndrome was removed from the DSM uh, or the the big book of diagnoses. Yeah, like DSMR or something. <laughs> yeah, I think we're on five or six or seven now uh, versions of it, but removed from it and it is just incorporated into the autism spectrum. So there are different levels that they'll diagnose with, um, which are related to just severity on how well you can engage with the neurotypical world or live your life in within society without additional constructs of constructs of help. Mm-hmm. So Asperger's is now would now be essentially high functioning autism versus having its own separate kind of diagnoses. Gotcha. Which, hmm, I don't know. I know very little about this subject, but I just, I feel like there's two things that I'm thinking. One is I feel like sharing with somebody that like, yeah, I have Asperger's. Most people who know anything about it know like, okay, I have a pretty good understanding of what that likely means for this individual who has that, which is that like they're probably incredibly capable. Like most people, they just, they've learned that there are certain situations that they react differently to and, you know, they need to manage that. Um, but also it probably comes with some, you know, superpowers as well. Um, and then my other thought too is just like, and I was thinking about this and as I was reading through stuff before we met, which is, I think autism is one of those things that everybody, m- most people still today think of the most extreme versions of it that they've seen. Mm-hmm. And so like, Brain man. yeah. And I was thinking about it today and I was like, if you tell somebody you're ADHD today, it like in one ear out the other, like, yeah, everybody is. Right. But if you told that to somebody 10 years ago um, and like kind of really explained what it was, they'd probably think on a, you know, relatively similar level to what they would think if you said that you had autism, you know, maybe not a fair comparison, but you get the general idea. And I think that autism in particular is one that like, we need to start talking about in a way that like, probably a lot more people that are on the spectrum than we ever, you know, initially thought. And it's not just the obvious ones. Cause like, especially in the workplace, there are certain like professions and stuff that you tend to have more people that mm-hmm. are on the spectrum that, you know, yep. um, are, are attracted towards because of their skill sets. I think a lot of engineers like software developers yep. on, on the spectrum, big time, they get to hyper-focus on very specific tasks and, be given tasks, complete tasks, and do an incredible job at it. Think creatively about how to work through some of these complex problems, those types of things. But there's probably a ton of people even outside of that. Yes, I think there is too. And it's it's interesting when you're watching for it and paying attention to it mm. of how many there are. They're like, mm, probably not autism, but definitely something going mm. on that you're not picking up on something or there's definitely a different way that people think that they're interpreting things differently that if you're paying attention could be very helpful at work mm. it's just a gigantic psychology what are what are some of the things that you tend, tend to see um so i see a lot of people who need the right motivation so the way that they speak to other people um i have an interesting department almost the entire department that i work with this has been an interesting experiment where Everyone who is hired into this department looks the same. They're all the same type of persona. <laughs> like we played a game for a while because they would send out pictures. You know, here's who was hired, and and without looking at who they where they were hired into, could pretty much ninety five percent accuracy match the people going into this department because they all fit yeah a certain persona, which matches the leader's persona that they are projecting, and there's a fragile ego there. <laughs> um, and uh, which is fine because 
I have paid attention to that and I can work within it and figured out the strategies that I need to employ to ensure that it does not derail projects and things like that. Um, and then paying attention to when you have built trust up with people. I just had a colleague say they had met with this person and um, kept throwing out there, oh, Brooke's not going to be happy about this. Brooke's not going to approve this. Have you talked to her? Like, I think you're going to have to pass by her first. She's going to be so mad. And I said, mm, I don't know if they've ever seen me mad. I've yeah. never, I don't really get mad. I found out recently what will make me mad <laughs> at work um, and then had to dissect why did that make me so mad because this is not normal for me. Uh, so it was a complete deflection of they did not want their view or their persona to be tarnished by being upset or being combative about mm -hmm. something that they really don't want to have happen or have to deal with. So they were deflecting to let me deal with it or deflecting so they didn't have to make the decision on it, which makes perfect sense for the psychology of this person yeah. and what they need. Uh, it's been similarly interesting. Um, I do work with IT a little bit and there's a lot of neurodivergency there, which is pretty, it is pretty common. Yeah. They're also tend to be less aware of it when they talk less about it. Uh, and their leaders don't seem to know how to deal with it as well. The leaders who lead their teams very well are the ones who are more informed about it and paying attention because you just have to modify a little bit how you're speaking. So I always pay attention to what is the communication style that you need to receive in order to hear me and understand me. And I had one manager um, before... I learned anything about autism or ADHD who um, was definitely ADHD. I know now, but you, uh, if you wanted him to read an email, you needed to send an email that was bulleted with probably no more than five bullet points where he just straight up wasn't going to read it. He was not going <laughs> to receive that information, which frustrated people, but there's no reason to be frustrated about it. If you know mm. and understand how someone receives and needs to be communicated to modify your style and communicate that way or just understand you are not going to be understood you're going to be frustrated about it and that's pointless yeah something i a shower thought that i had actually just this morning was like the older that i get the more that i am seeing that i'm not quite as robust and flexible and i don't know i guess really it's just i'm less and less type a and you know hyper extroverted as i was you know when i was a kid which is not <clears throat> There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that, but it it just there are downsides to it for sure. Upsides to it and downsides. Life is easier for extroverts. It just mm -hmm. is um, yeah. for sure. So, you know, and trying to cope with that for a long time, I was trying to get that back. I was like, as it was slipping away, I was trying to claw it back. And why am I getting less and less extroverted the older that I get and those kinds of things struggling with it before just accepting it. But I was thinking about within the workplace, think about like the best leaders that I've ever seen and ever had. Um, and, and what I loved about them so much. And they really could do it all. Like, honestly, like great with numbers, great with data and statistics, really quick learner, um, really empathetic leader who took the time to really understand their employees. Also on the surface, legit seemed extroverted. They were not afraid to get up in front of people, could speak really well. I mean, just all these types of things, right? Um, but with all the soft skills too that a lot of people that are type A don't typically have. Um, and just trying to think of like, that is not me anymore. I feel like that was me when I was younger, you know, and maybe I had more bravado than was deserved when I was younger. I'm, I'm sure that I did, but I'm like, I need to prepare myself for conversations where I might feel like I have some weaknesses now or moments where like, I'm just not that just 
super perfect, you know, manager or leader or whatever, and be comfortable having a conversation with whoever it is that holds the, holds the keys to my success, you know, of whether or not I get promoted to where I want to be or whatever, to be like, what is really critical to you for this role? For this person in this role, like what is really critical? Do you need them to love being in front of people all the time? Do you need them to want to be on calls with people all day long? Because um, that's not me anymore. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. But here's all the things that I'm super strong in. And like, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that like, I'll do better than 90% of people that you'll talk to in these categories and be okay with that. And also just accept that like, there are going to be roles and things like that, that I'm just not as good of a fit for, whether it's because of the person I would report to, who just totally values things that I cannot bring to the table, or because that role just really does require things that I can't do. So in, in you talking about like your teams and things like that, um, one thing that I'm trying to do like in my hiring the last couple of years has been understanding ex- what, what is critical for somebody in a role and making sure that that's what I focus on in the interview process. And very clear that if you're not strong in these areas or really comfortable in these areas, you won't do well and I won't do well with you not doing well because I've made it very clear you need to be strong here. And then here's the ones that you don't have to be strong now, but you have to have an interest in and I can teach you or we can teach you but like you've got to be willing and interested. And if you're not, and if you're not engaged when we're trying to teach you, I'm not going to waste my fucking time. You know, and I think those two things coupled together have, I haven't had many bad hires in the last couple of years as I've really focused in on that. But then I'm trying to also full circle, you know, trying to apply that to myself as well and really understanding what do I bring to the table and what do I not anymore, you know, as I've, I've gotten older. I think too, I would wager that if you went back to those leaders, they had a lot of support and asked mm. a lot of questions too, mm. because there's, I mean, I, when I got hired to the role I'm currently on, my boss was looking for someone who was strong in his weaknesses to round out. He knew there were things that he was not good at. He did not enjoy. They were not his strengths and did not need a duplicate of himself. That's so, really smart. Most yeah. people do not do that. He's also a perpetual learner that I have so much respect for. So I think I see a lot from that and have figured out that generally those leaders, when you have the soft skills and the emotional intelligence that goes really far and you can find the data, you can learn the numbers, you can figure those things out. And if you have soft skills, you'll probably have a whole backroom of people who are willing to help you and willing to take a minute and explain things to you. So learning quickly is probably your biggest skill set and will cover off almost everything else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And thankfully, like I was really lucky that my confidence wasn't learned. My confidence was like kind of, it's just self instilled for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know what the combination was. I've thought about it a lot. Um, just never really struggled with it. Um, and then, so that has made it easier as other obstacles have come my way of not immediately associating them with, I'm a failure or I'm not good enough, which is most people. Um, it just has allowed me to deal with things in a much healthier way for my own self um, and leaves a lot more room for me to then take better care of the people around me because I'm not just in a super low place over that. Uh, depression being, you know, the one um, exception to that for me, which is just like this. If somebody looks at like my history and everything else about me and, and then sees these like random wrenches in my life where like I was just being a complete piece of shit or whatever. Um, and, and it's not the ones that do make sense with my personality because I'm a very lazy, like self-centered person in a lot of ways. Um, but the other ones, it's like, 
the hell's going on there? And then it's just like, I just, I couldn't function. Something was going on in my brain. My brain was just like, you don't get to feel like you have any motivation for life. So <laughs> good luck. Experiencing a chemical imbalance in my yeah, brain. Definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely for sure. Uh, have you seen this trend? Are you on Instagram at all? A little bit. Have you seen this trend of like the uh, NGL links, not going to lie links? It's like you can ask anonymous questions to I people. I saw you did it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's one of the first, like, I don't know, trends in a long time that it's more than just meme worthy. Like, I'm seeing a lot of people get asked really personal questions and they answer them honestly. And it's amazing. They get vulnerable. They're sharing, like, I don't know, just really deep things about themselves, um, which, a lot of people probably have never shared with anybody other than maybe their, you know, significant other or their partner or, you know, maybe a parent or, or a therapist if they've done therapy, um, which is just really cool to see. We need more of that. I'm a chronic oversharer, <laughs> so I don't have that problem personally. Yeah. But Same. yeah, I do think it's, it is interesting because you learn so much more about people. And I think that's one of the things that will be very hard in the remote environment, which I love so much. And also had a real life experience just this week of a colleague who I've been working with for months on a very large project that's very complex and stressful and not going great. Mm. Um, but I work, have worked fine with her and kind of been trying to figure her out because she presents a persona in meetings that I'm not particularly fond of. I don't find it that effective. And also figure there had to be a a reason either this is her genuine persona because I haven't met her in person or had enough one-off one-on-one conversations to tell their larger meetings or there's something in the political environment which would also make sense for this project it's very politically charged um, so met her in person this week and answered all of those questions and she also has <laughs> told me you know, her the persona that she presents often in meetings is very demure and kind of almost wishy-washy and sort of mm. asking a lot for, you know, whatever will work for you, kind of a mm. appeasing persona. And that's, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that at all. <laughs> uh, and I have a hard time dealing with that. Cause like, just tell me what you need and just be like, let's just figure this out. Uh, and she's like, oh yeah, the team does not like me cause I am super confrontational. <laughs> like, you you're confrontational since when are you confrontational huh. so, well not with you because obviously you know what you're talking about and it's a productive meeting but when i have to <laughs> i was like i would wow. not have guessed that from the because it's just kind of non-personal non-face-to-face interactions around yeah. something very specific but got all, the whole other well rounded out who she is as a human being by spending a few hours in person working through things and talking through them and getting a better idea of how her brain works and how she thinks about things and her history with all of these teams we're working with. Um, and I think that will be hard to replicate unless you create some really specific intentional environments to allow people to connect as humans, Yeah, which is the antidote to a lot of the churn you see amongst people. Yeah. So the funny thing about working remote is that one of the great things is if you're not hyper extroverted, you're not constantly put in situations where you feel like an outcast and it's exhausting and draining and all those things. But the upside of seeing people in person or even just one-on-one -on -one video calls is you establish a connection that you cannot get otherwise. You mm -hmm. just, there are layers to it. It's like 
text message is less intimate and you get less out of it than even like I would say maybe a Slack message because there's a profile picture there and a little bit of information about them and a history that you can easily see. And then it's video calls and then it's in person, you know, all those kinds of things or, or maybe vo- voice calls fit in there somewhere in between. But I'm definitely one of those people that I'm like, I want to, I've seen it happen before where I forge a connection with somebody because I put in the effort to, you know, just have a one-on-one call with them, even just for 15 minutes or something. We have something random in common. And now when I see them virtually or in person, it's like, oh, hey, you know, and there's a thing mm-hmm. there, feels great. But it is exhausting, and the times when that doesn't go well, you know. Um, oh, my camera die. <laughs> Rest in peace. I guess we'll get half this podcast. Um, it's okay. Um, anyways, uh, but, like, the times where it doesn't go well, where, like, the other person is clear, clearly, like, not really interested in engaging very much or giving you much information to, to work with, and you're carrying the conversation from one side, that just so much so deters me from wanting to do it. Um yeah, there's so much value to that. You just can't get outside of at least a video call, if not meeting in person. Yeah, other sides of people, because you just open up more. Yeah. And it, and it, maybe it puts us, everyone, into my default mode of let's just get the work done. <laughs> I don't care about the bullshit weather, like, no, yeah, climate change, whatever. Um, <laughs> stop talking, please. Yeah, I, th- I think it kind of does because everyone's busy and you want to get this in and get this done. And there's there's a little bit sometimes at the beginning of calls, at least that I'm on, uh, as you're waiting for everyone to get on. Um, oh. But otherwise, you're getting business done and then you're moving on. And I think you can tell even in those employees or colleagues who have more of a relationship because there will be a joke in there. Or there'll be a little bit of a different vibe to that relationship where you can tell who's connected and has created those interpersonal connections yeah yeah for sure damn i had another question i was going to ask you and i forgot we just were bouncing all over the place which is great but uh <laughs> welcome to my brain i did I not forgetting. medicate today oh wow <laughs> you're doing you're doing great i i did not know you well enough that i would have known would chris have known your Excellent. husband uh possibly but i am trying to say super focused <laughs> and not zone out <laughs> okay so when when you when you haven't taken your med- medication then like when you're having conversations like these, you know, where do you find the struggle? Is that, is it as you're making a larger point that it ends up tangentially going everywhere or what happens? It can, it can lose the thread where I struggle a lot is um, like when you are talking and I'm very interested in what you're seeing and you see something that I want to respond to, mm. but I socially cannot interrupt you because that's rude. But I'm also going to forget what I wanted to say. Just like so, I did five minutes ago. Yes. Minutes ago, yeah. So like, so I will hold, have to hold in my brain, like repeat over whatever it was, but then there might not be a good time later to bring that up and then I need to let it go. But it's, so it's very hard to stay focused on what you're saying and then also remember hold that in mind. what I would want to respond with because it'll just be gone. Okay. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I'm sure that I'm ADHD to some degree, whether or not it's, you know, clinical or otherwise, but I feel like we should just establish a system here like it's a little late now you know we're at, i don't know an, an hour in but i'm like i i know that that's actually a thing on other podcasts or um like on like casting desks or like news desks when somebody wants to say something they have hand signals or ways that they'll like indicate like i have you know because typically bringing up like my nerdy side i watch esports you know basically people play video games professionally for those who don't know it's a thing it's pretty big don't judge me uh, you can judge me i don't give a shit um 
but uh, there's usually somebody who's like the moderator, right? Who's like, they can fill, they can just talk about nonsense if they have to. And then they have experts that are sitting there who weigh in on different situations and things. And uh, anytime the moderator is like just kind of bullshitting about stuff, but there's somebody who, you know, oh, you touched on something that I want to key into. They have some type of hand signal. That's all that we need because <laughs> shit, I can cut myself off. Half the time I'm just rambling about nonsense and I'd much rather hear what you have to say. So from now on, just give me a, just give me a subtle middle finger or you know, a peace sign or something from your hands and I'll just wrap up my thought. Oh my gosh. Kieran flipped off three of the cutest video photos from the pool the other night. Oh, I just no. looked at him and he, this is not who he is at all. He's not is not and the antithesis of who this child is mm. and i looked at him grandma was like is he our mom <laughs> our mom was like is he flipping off the camera and i look closer and he's got <laughs> and first i'm like maybe it's just how he was holding the pole because he had the, my four-year-old daughter on his shoulders and so cute and then asked him about it and he was like oh my gosh i can't believe you noticed that like of course i noticed that those were print worthy and you ruined them oh no i don't even and he counted like he made me stop swearing i usually have the mouth of a sailor in my native language and he used to keep count of how many times i said bitch during the day mom that is 17 i think it's a new record like don't be a little bitch about it okay 18 yeah so that was so that's a great hand signal Oh, Apparently, man. it's very relevant right now. That, that that will work. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, La- last thing on that, and then if we have anything else that we want to cover, then we can talk about it too. But I'm, I'm curious, where where are things at with Kieran now? And, you know, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure it's still ups and downs, struggles. And then, like, are you two super close in part because um, you understand where he's coming from because you are – relatively similar in a lot of the ways uh, I I think that is one reason I think I understand him because we are so similar in a lot of ways and I recognize a lot of what's going on for him and can pick up on it and be mm-hmm. attuned to it I think the other reason though is that he has some very deeply ingrained trust trust issues mm-hmm. so there's a very limited number of people who he trusts to always be there for him and that he knows he can't push away really regardless of what he does he's finding there's limits on how much we will tolerate Mm -hmm. with how he treats people but it's safe to melt down which he hates that word but we haven't found a good replacement safe for him to completely lose it um with two people in his life and i'm one of them my mom grandma his grandma is the other one that it doesn't really matter what he says it might hurt our feelings it might not be kind he's now like six foot he's like four inches taller than me so cannot be physically aggressive like he was when he was younger but um but knows that he can lose that control and we will still love him at the end of the day and we will still hug him and still care for him we're going to talk about it. So I think that is the other big part of it is that you cannot, you cannot mention to him, you can't talk about this someday, I will die. It's just not, you can't even hint at it, you can't make jokes about it, you can't make jokes about anything harmful, like anything mm. serious happening to me. He can't handle it. He cannot deal with it at all. Uh, and I think that's a, 
a big part of it is that I am the one person who has always been there through his whole life, who has never left him and never made him feel insecure and always been there for him. And he still, even with my husband, who he met when Kieran was four and a half, uh, he still tests that and pushes him a lot. Mm. And he loves him. Uh, Kieran loves Chris and cares about him and also is the meanest to him mm. out of anyone. And it's almost uh, like, what, how, much, how much do I have to do before yeah. you leave? Where's the boundary at to prove that you can't really be trusted? And at the same time, he, he would just lose his mind if Chris wasn't in his life anymore, I think. Yeah. It would devastate him. Yeah, that's really hard. Like that type of behavior comes out in in other um, environments and situations as well. It's not just like I don't know, just when somebody doesn't have that explicit trust of you. It it can be in a much simpler way too than like really pushing somebody to their limits. Like at work, you know, if I don't know if somebody you know is talking shit behind my back or I, I don't know, just has my best interest in mind. Like I'm just I'm a naturally very trusting person typically because I don't feel like there's much damage other people can do to me that I couldn't detect and subvert early on enough if I needed to. But even still, I'm not going to just be so free floating with my ideas and, you know, um, just be able to spitball with them. And I don't know other benefits that come with when you're like this person could have screwed me over and they chose not to and there was nothing for them to gain. And they may or may not even know that I know that, which means that I can really trust them because they weren't trying to do it for some political gain. So that's really valuable. Um, something I wanted to bring up that you were mentioning, though, I actually remembered this time. I'm so sad I lost my mm-hmm. other thought. I thought it was going to be really interesting. I was curious to get your thoughts on it. But I've talked about this on a couple of the other podcasts, I think, which is growing up with somebody in your life who you believe, whether they do or don't, loves you unconditionally. I, I certainly felt like I had that from mom. Um, and I know that I know that even that topic is complicated. There were certainly times where I may not have felt that, you know, from her or from other people. Um, but in talking with Steph, I don't even know if it was on the podcast or not, my wife, Steph, um, talking with her about her experience growing up and some other people too, and then just reading more about online about kind of some of these subjects, like I think that that's one of the big reasons I don't have as many trust issues as maybe other people do is that from a pretty early age, I had somebody who saw me a lot of, at a lot of my worst moments, moments that I think back to when I was 14 and threw just an absolute tantrum at a soccer game and like chucked a water bottle and like was kicking stuff. And, you know, mom and dad are there. And one of them was like, if you keep behaving like this, we're not going to come anymore. And I realized in that moment, it was like, actually really important to me that one or both of them attended some of my athletic activities. I don't know why that was so important Mm -hmm. to me, but it was. And I was like, I don't want to lose that. And so I altered my behavior, or at least that's, that's my recollection of it. Um, but that they didn't leave kind of like you were saying, you know, with Kieran where it's like, he knows that he can act in a way that later he may look back and feel shameful to some degree about how he acted. And yet he knows that you won't leave. That is really valuable. And like, I know that some people would argue like, well, you know, you're going to raise a child that, you know, isn't going to learn consequences and you need to be tough on him, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, honestly, I've thought a lot about this since we started this podcast. And I actually think it's so important. Like, obviously it has to be balanced out with consequences for sure. Boundaries. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. But like, that is invaluable having somebody that you're like, this person won't leave if I 
make a fool of myself once, you know. Mm -hmm. And anyone who has a child who deals with any sort of behavioral issues too, a lot, especially if there's any sensory sensitivities, has experienced this very frustrating reality that your child or this person in your life will be really great all through school. Teachers say uh, they have no problems with them or they'll go to other people's houses and be totally fine and then they will come home and they will turn into this terror. Mm. And until you learn more about what's happening is they are holding it together in those places where it is not safe to not hold it together until they are exhausted and they come home exhausted, mentally and emotionally exhausted. And now this is a safe space to unload and release all of that emotion that's pent up. Wow. You are a safe space. How many, that's like, that's a bomb for me. Cause like how many parents do you think don't realize that's happening with their kids? Cause they, they probably feel like they're almost getting gaslighted by their, you know, the kids, friends and families who are like, your kid is great. And you're like, my kid right now is kind of a nightmare. I love them to death, but they're kind of a nightmare. Yeah. You're like, what the fuck is going on? And that explains it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And you can do a lot. Once you understand that, you can alleviate it. But it does feel hard. Like, oh, maybe my kid just knows that they can push me around or they can say whatever they want and I'll love them so they're taking advantage of it and treating right. me poorly. And there is a difference between loving your child and I mean, there's natural consequences and boundaries that you do have to set up. So especially now where Kieran is, he, I think, outweighs me. He is taller than me. And he had, we had physical issues when he was younger where he would try to destroy property and try to push you down the stairs. And, <laughs> like, <laughs> you had to physically restrain him to protect yourself and right. your home. And I could not, obviously, do that today at all. Um So those are some very important physical boundaries. And we set some, I don't think he would ever hurt his little sister. Yeah. But knowing that he's described, you know, when, when that is happening, when I'm in a meltdown, it's like, I'm watching my body move. I am outside of my body and I'm just watching it happen and I can't stop it. I can't do anything. I don't want to be saying those things or doing those things, but I can't stop it. It's not me. And we set super clear boundaries, especially around our youngest of, if you are struggling and you need to act out against someone, this is the red line. You do not act out against her. I don't care what she does. I don't care what is going on. That is a super hard red line. And mm. the consequences for harming her will be severe. And I'm not talking like, you know, they push each other around. There's some brotherly yeah. stuff like that. But like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a, he can, I think, uh, yeah, there's some severe stuff. Um, and, he and I've watched him get super frustrated and like ball his hands into fists, you know, and you can see his whole body go rigid and watch him walk out of the room. Wow. Where she is. That's amazing. And he's so and he'll be mad. Maybe we can talk it out later or, you know, in, in cueing him to like, hey, why don't you take a break? Um, which is helpful to be able to read read him and then also paying attention to myself too, where we've had you know, birthday parties and lots of people around like, hey, you don't have to be down here if you don't want to. Like, just so you know, you have permission to leave and no one's going to be bothered or mind. There's going to be no social infraction because he doesn't want people to be mad at him, you know, too. So I always say it's okay to, to go take a break if you need to or remind him, you know, like our niece and nephew 
are amazing and very chaotic when they're together. There's just this frenetic energy yes. between them, especially in her parents' house where it's a little smaller space and they're mm. running in circles. And sound is one that he hasn't been able to handle ever his entire life. Like we had uh, headphones for him when he was three watching fireworks because the fireworks sounds was too much. Yeah. Um, and he, I got him um, earplugs that the sound of voices passes through more, but helps filter out all that background noise and awesome. kind of just tamp it down. And he uses them at school. Oh, that's so cool. He's gotten yelled at by teachers a few times, thinking they're headphones. But, you know, remind him, you have them. They're in, they're in his pocket at pretty much all times because they're small. You have them. Go ahead and put them in. Yeah. It's okay. Use them as you need them um, and make yourself more comfortable or leave the space if you need to. You know what I think will be really cool for him, and I'm sure that it's hard for you to see this now, but maybe not so much because I think you guys have come a long way and he's come a long way, but I think that you being able to provide him ways to deal with his neurodivergence, which, um, anyways, tangent, but I think that'll really well prepare him for helping other people when he maybe has a better handle on himself and his emotions. Cause I mean, frankly, like if you have any real struggles emotionally or mentally, you know, up until the point that you're in your mid to late twenties, like it's pretty hard for you to help other people at the same time, because it's just such a challenging period of your life. Um, between dealing with the emotional roller coaster of puberty and everything that comes with like exiting that to early adulthood where you have all these new responsibilities that are very foreign to you. You know, I, I feel like getting into my late and early thirties, like things are relatively settling in, right? It's like kind of understand my career path. And I mean, some of that I'm lucky to have figured out, but, um, overall I'm kind of like, there isn't day to day things that just catch me completely off guard and I'm not raising kids. So that's a huge one, but still get the idea that I'm, I'm kind of excited for him, hopefully to be able to be like talking to somebody who doesn't feel like they can give themselves a, an allowance to use the tools that will actually help them and be like, yo, I do the same thing. Like mm-hmm. I have to use these tools because these are the things that I struggle with sometimes that other people typically don't understand and they don't have to understand it. I know that I need this and it doesn't hurt anybody else. And you should allow yourself the same, you know, allowance as well. Should hopefully be yeah. really cool. Yeah. Our conversations very much, I mean, so I'll backpedal a little bit. I had one of his counselors, the one actually who suggested that he might be autistic, was talking about my frustration of trying to get him diagnosed and, and at least evaluated. And he was saying, why, why does it matter if he gets evaluated? Why does it matter if he gets this diagnosis? And he said, I don't, it's not about even getting this diagnosis. It's that if I can understand what's going on, I can help. I yeah. can find the research. I can figure it out. I can, that is the only reason that it matters to know what it is, what type of neurodivergency you have. And no one had been able to figure them out before. And it made a lot more sense. But it also helps change the conversation from there are going to be things that are just always going to be harder for you, and that's fine. Or they're going to be different, and the way that the world is set up is not going to be tailored to that. It's going to make it harder. Right. So what you need to learn to recognize and understand are what are my coping strategies and my what skills can I develop around those things so that I can still function and do what I need to do, and then how can I maximize all of the superpowers that I get from this because yeah. they are absolutely there and things that can make you very successful. I think the majority of my success in my career is because of my neurodivergency. Yeah. Um, and I think for him too, he's a, he 
you cannot make him do anything he doesn't want to do. He has to choose to do it. There's absolutely nothing in the world if he has decided he doesn't want to do something, he will not do it for anything. There's no goading, convincing, guilting, nothing. He will not do it. Um, So he's a rock, right? So I had to learn you don't have power struggles with the mountain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The mountain will not move. You will just beat yourself into pieces. Um, But also learned that there are things he is naturally really good at that he really likes. Mm. And if he's motivated intrinsically, um, then he will figure it out. Like we joke a lot about um, his school laptop getting taken away two years in a row because he doesn't want to do school work. But he figured out how to hack into the school's admin system and make himself an admin on his laptop and then would schedule the Wi-Fi to go off so his teacher would think that his Wi-Fi wasn't working so he could go to the library and turn it back on and start a Minecraft server that he'd share with his friends and play Minecraft. Incredible. Right? (laughs) Fucking incredible. And just from like YouTube videos and whatever. And I remember talking to the IT guys at the school. Like, can you please just shut off his access to these things? Like, well, we did. He cannot get on Minecraft. Like, he can only get on these three sites. I said, I'm literally standing behind him watching him play Minecraft on this computer. (laughs) I'm with my eyes right now watching him do it. So you're wrong. And he, and he was like, well, I'll show him, Mom, if you really want me to. I'll teach him how I did it. <laughs> he was it. proud. Yeah. He was proud. And I was, I'm proud of him, too. I'm like, dude, use your skills, your yeah. super skills for good. You know, but he was teaching himself Python from a YouTube video. Oh, like, my God. Look, I just watched it. You know, I had to watch it twice. It was a nine-hour video that he just watched the whole thing. And it was starting to do Python. Jeez. So I feel... Like the public education school system is not serving him. He basically failed out, but he also figured out that you can fail all of your classes up through middle school, all your core classes, and you still move on to the next grade. So why worry about it? Mm. No extrinsic motivation was going to make him do that if he didn't want to. And then he pulled him up into C's and D's the last week of school somehow. So I'm glad we stressed about that all year. Um, I stopped stressing. I stopped caring about it because I realized that this is a kid who is going to research and figure out how to do the things that he wants to do, that yeah. he's interested in. And I am probably hindering him by being so strict about his computer time and what he has access to. But it's a boundary question because any boundary I set for him to try to give him more freedom, he will get frustrated with and try to find a way around so perfect case in point was I set up an old, my old, I have an old iPad set up so that he was flying here by himself, had a layover later at night so that he, I could communicate with him and he could do something on the plane. Went over it with him, had parental controls that were fairly generous set up on it. Um, and about two weeks in, two and a half weeks in, the parental control screen time stopped updating. So he figured out I didn't lock down being able to change account settings so he could still sign in to things like Discord and stuff like that. He figured out if he signs out of the Apple ID, the screen time goes away and he can play as much as he wants and do whatever he wants on it. And I won't know. Uh, and he was trying to say, I don't need limits. I can handle it. I can handle it. I'm like, okay. I can't handle it. Yeah. He can't handle it. I have limits on my phone yeah. to remind me so I don't just mindlessly death scroll. Yeah, 15 hours in one day as soon as he had it broken. Within oh, yeah. two days, 15 hours. 
you know, he's annoyed at me right now because I lowered his limits. I'm like, honey, somehow you spent 44 hours on this iPad last week. You spent a full-time job mostly talking on Discord. But doing the TikTok, YouTube, whatever, have 44 hours. Wow. That's an excessive amount of time. And then he gets so absorbed in that he doesn't want to do anything else. Right. So I don't talk about this is bad. You should be doing it. We talk about you're breaking trust and boundaries mm. when you just needed to ask. And I didn't say no to you once and le- until you'd hit a severe, like, okay, mm. honey, you need to be doing something else. Your behavior changes when you do this all the time and you don't want to go to the beach and you don't want to go hang out with your family and you don't want to do fun things when this is available and everyone needs balance. It's not that this is a bad activity and I don't want you doing it. Or it's, just a you thing. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs balance. It happens with your diet. There's no foods that are bad. There's no foods that are like, this is all you should eat. It's balance is what's important across your life. So I think he'll be just fine at the end of the day, but it definitely is hard to set those boundaries and hold to them because you want your kids to be happy. You want to be able to do the stuff that they love. And I want him to be able to learn how to code, but also have not figured out how to do it safely without him hacking the system. (laughs) Well, I, I, I just, I think it is so amazing that you're not trying to shove him into a uh, neurotypical, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Neurotypical path. It's like the thing that sucks is if you don't graduate high school, it will hinder your ability to progress in life professionally and not progressing professionally, at least to a degree that you can make enough money to, you know, have a living um, that you're comfortable with is like leads to a lot of other major problems um, that are not really helpful ones to learn how to deal with. And there's a difference between having a job that doesn't pay quite enough um, and learning how to live on very little and be broke. And that's different than I know what I want and I can't get there because I don't have this piece of paper because I just didn't manage to, you know, get the right ducks in a row, Mm -hmm. you know, during the traditional school system that you are required to complete K through 12 in the U S in order to get this piece of paper. You know, it's like, I just, I think back and I've shared the story quite a few times with a lot of people of depression for me, high school would not have graduated if not for mom. I remember with the most like express sincerity telling her and knowing, not just believing, knowing for myself at that moment, I will never care about graduating high school. She'd come downstairs at 6.30, 7 a.m., 7.30, whatever, like, like, honey, I know that you don't care, but someday you'll be glad that you got up and went. And I, my apathy was just mm-hmm. complete and total. And so I was like, you don't understand, Mom. I will never care. And she was right. And I was also kind of right because in that moment, that's genuinely what I believed. But point of the story Super glad that I graduated instead of having to go back later, maybe do a GED. Thankfully, there's programs for that now. But point being, circling back is just I love that you're like, how do we help him get to the point where he's got enough, you know, check boxes checked off that people will look at what's on paper and not just completely shut him down and he'll have doorways open, but also not just totally try to shove him into a you know, neurotypical box. That's, that's incredible. I don't think almost any parents are doing that. It took a long time for me to get to the point of realizing that he's probably going to be okay. Even if he didn't graduate high school, mm. he's smart. He'll figure it out. And he also could get a GED. He might be making life harder for himself, but that he'll have to deal with that. 
what matters and I cannot control the outcome. I cannot control who he becomes. I can't control mm. any of that. I can barely influence it. And there's a lot of mixed studies about really the influence of parents mm. um, that are, that basically we have no control at all. Yeah. <laughs> How our kids turn out. What I can control is does he feel loved and does he feel safe? Yeah. That's it. That's a limit of what I control. And if I also took a step back and said, okay, what is important to me? Is it that society says that my kid needs to graduate and it's like no one wants to see their kids feeling out of school? Yeah. You know, that's embarrassing as a parent. It's socially acceptable. Like, oh, you must be failing somehow. But I don't really care at the end of the day. I care that my child is healthy and happy and safe and that he knows every day that he is loved and cared about. And none, the rest of it's all going to come secondary to that. And that was a huge shift for me to be able to take a lot of, uh, I have a lot of shoulds, mm -hmm. I think, that are also related to my own neurodivergency and understanding, you know, maybe he would be better off with a, a mom who was more structured because he really thrives on routine. If I could be more consistent I should be sitting down with him at a regular time every day and working on his homework. He needs that. He needs someone to sit down and go through with him or he's not going to finish it. I should be doing this. I should be getting up an hour earlier to make sure he gets up on time and gets to school uh, and figuring that out. And, and ultimately, there are just some of those things I'm not going to be able to do. I just physically cannot do that. I mentally cannot do that. It will make me miserable. It'll make it hard for all of us. And... And I should just be the best mother that I can be at the end of the day and should just love him. And those are the things that I can do every day. Well, I can tell you that of all the people that I've had deep conversations with, which are a lot, those are the conversations I really enjoy. I seek those out with as many people as I can. The long-term lasting damage that's really hard for people to overcome is the emotional stuff. It's not the... And, and that can come in a variety of forms. Some of it is more seemingly physical, like whether or not your parents like, you know, supported getting you to school or you had to figure it out yourself, which led to a feeling abandoned or, you know, neglected. Like, again, it, it's more convoluted than just, I don't know, emotional versus physical. But point being is like, if you really, really know that your parents love you or, or that you have people that love you, it doesn't even specifically have to be your parents. Um, and that really support you, especially unconditionally, that is huge. Like as soon as you think there's conditions on things, it, it makes it transactional. You know, it's, it's a different type of trust and things like that that you learn. But when you have that, like that gives you a free pass through a lot of really challenging situations in life and your own internal personal struggles that you can, I, I love the point you made, he can go back and get a GED if he absolutely has to at some point. Um, and especially being as smart and capable as he is, it would not be that hard for him. Probably easier than mm -hmm. going through high school, the traditional path. <laughs> Don't listen to this, Karen. <laughs> um, but what you cannot do is you cannot go back to grade school or any year prior and go back and be like, I want to make sure that he felt loved and cared for. That would take years as adults for you to try to repair. Mm hmm yeah, it has to be ingrained. That's where your trust comes from. And I think that's absolutely true. I think the only reason that I have made it out to the other side of all of the stuff that I have gone through is because I had this strong foundation of a whole family that I'm close to that I love and you know I cared about and they were there to be supportive and there as much as you pushed, you know, or disappeared or 
became a different person for a while, they were still there for you to come back to and to be welcoming and talk through things and be supportive. And I think that is a really major privilege and benefit. And I didn't even realize how rare it was until I became an adult. And the more people I talked to, my husband's family, um, are (laughs) in my ex-husband's family, uh, nothing like that. Like that is not normal to have such a tight knit, close and healthy relationships too. Like not weirdly close stuff. Like everyone has very healthy relationships and a lot of open communication and it's, and it's based on genuine love and support for each other. Yeah. Well, I think a huge thing that I think you were touching on, but just to give real clarity to it is like, especially growing up in Utah, Mormonism, all that, like there's this perception of a close family. And I think this exists well beyond Mormon families as well, but where it's like every Sunday and every Wednesday we get together and do these things, but there's no real emotional connection going on necessarily. I have a really close friend who his wife's family, I would say is kind of like that to a degree. I think it is a little bit deeper than just that, but it's like, I think a big thing for our family is that and we've grown into this. We haven't always been this way, but just, we don't really shame each other. So like, to be honest, sometimes I feel, and sometimes I deserve it. Sometimes I don't, but shame about not wanting to go and do family things. You know, I moved, we moved out to Florida almost, almost exclusively to be close to family for a few years, at least as nieces and nephews are growing up, be able to spend some time there, but also just be with family in general. Weather helps here, but um, that was a big part of it. And then here I am, you know, seeing them once a month, you know, um, and most people would be like, what's wrong with you? You know, but it's one of those situations that I can't explain necessarily. But it's like we talked about earlier where I'm like, I love them so much and I love seeing them and spending time with them. And yet there are some times on the weekend, especially where I'm like, I need nobody to talk to me for two days straight, Mm -hmm. except Steph. Cause she knows how to do I it. Want to be we, alone. Yeah, you don't count. <laughs> and it doesn't. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much I love you or care about you. Um, and I, I can't give you a good reason. I slept fine last night. I feel fine today physically. I just need to not go and be around anybody. And it's not personal. Um, and I, I've been really impressed with like our family is pretty cool about that. Almost every other family would even just jokingly, you know, make jabs that there was too much truth to. So you mm-hmm. could still feel the hurt of like, man, I wonder when we're going to get to see you again, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you know, those things are totally born out of love and people are following it up immediately with like, hopefully, you know, we're not serious and you know, we love you. But, um, you know, I, I think Steph and a lot of other people have experienced the all too um, serious side of that, where it's like, your family is making jabs at things about you or how you're choosing to live your life that have too much truth to them and you feel it. And it just makes you feel like, man, I I can't be myself around you. I can't, I can't make, choose to live my own life and do it how I want to do it because I know that you're going to shame me. So instead I will hide things from you and not share them with you. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. and that's not good. So I think that's something that's really special about our family is that like we make sure that we're there when we really need to be, you know, big holidays or get togethers or, you know, like you're out here visiting and like 
maybe sometimes I don't want to go and hang out, but I'm going to because I'm like, I need to make sure that Brooke knows that like I care or, or if other family comes out or whatever. Um, you know, then I'll push myself outside of my comfort zone a little bit for that. But other than that, it's like everybody's like, I understand that you're a human and I'm not going to like have these weird expectations of you that are really just me projecting what I want from you onto you. Yeah. And I do feel like it's genuine for everyone, like, like, uh, genuine for everyone. We say, Hey, are you coming? I want to see you. It's, I actually do want to see you. I really enjoy your company and being with you. That is why I am asking if you're going to be there. And if you're not, I'll be a little disappointed because I like you because I care about you. And for no other reason whatsoever, Mm -hmm. it's not a personal dig at anyone. And I, and I, I want to touch on the expectations piece because Mm. people get in trouble with expectations. That's the number one thing that I believe creates discontent with people. Yeah. And I feel I, I think Mitch is a really great example of this, that people have a lot of expectations that he's not the chattiest person. So it's just, so context when he wants to talk about something or has something to say, he'll say it. He's not, it's not, he doesn't talk or can't talk. He's, um, and if he does not have something that he wants to say or talk about, then he doesn't talk. That's very uncomfortable for a lot of people because we're used to filling the space. And it feels like there's something wrong if we aren't having conversation or it's not flowing or all the space isn't filled. That's an expectation that we put on Mitch. Well, where's the c- Mitch doesn't have anything to say. He's not talking. But I don't feel uncomfortable with Mitch. I don't feel like I need to fill the space for him with him. I don't have the expectation that it will be a nonstop. We're going to be talking and having conversation the whole time. If you can get comfortable with the silence and just hanging out and being with him, he's one of the funniest people that I know. Yeah. Who has the most clever things that he'll just pipe in with and just sprinkle, you know, like the salt on an amazing dinner to just finish yeah. it off. And, and he's definitely more of a one-on-one person. So if you are in a group, he does not feel the need to interject generally unless he just really has something to say he will talk a lot more when it's one-on-one and I feel like that's just part of who he is and if you can adjust expectations to allow him to just be himself and not project something any shoulds on that he's really fun to have around and really interesting to be with and the silence can be very comfortable when that is what's happening the thing that's really painful about expectations is they completely overshadow what somebody brings to the table. So like you just talked about what people can tend to perceive about Mitch is in terms of like a downside of some kind while also touching on which is just a perceived downside. It, it just is what it is. It's just a difference that's atypical versus what he brings, which is like genuine comedy or <laughs> real like, yeah, one liners that just come out of nowhere that you do not expect. I think Sam has that too. Uh, another similarity yeah. between those two. Um, and uh, like a, a genuine sense of really caring for the people around him too, that just manifests itself in a more subtle way typically than most people. But when you see it, you really feel it um, versus any kind of false sense of feeling like he needs to yeah, put on a show. Um, and if you sit there and you just dwell on your expectations of continuing to use Mitch as an example, you will not see any of the other amazing things that he brings, you know? And I, I don't know, Mitch and I are so different that I think that, I don't know, all kinds of content to talk about there in terms of like, I don't know, just a struggle for us, like 
you know, we're, we're the brothers. We have two brothers, two sisters in our family. I'm the youngest. He's the oldest. So I, I was definitely closest with you and Sam for a variety of reasons, but age certainly was a big factor, but also just our upbringing, our personalities were so incredibly different. But then we also have some interests that are um, alike between us two that I don't share with either you or Sam um, that have been really helpful and instrumental in us, like really forging relationship, especially as an adult, as adults. Um, but just, I don't know. It's like, I was very guilty of that, I guess is what I'm saying of just being like, it's so hard for me to connect with him. It's so hard for me to connect with him. And like, is that a me problem or is that a him problem? Like, it's definitely a me problem, mm-hmm. you know, cause I wasn't asking the question of like, what does a connection with Mitch mean? Where does that start? And what does that really look like? You know, instead I was like, here's what I expect connection with people to be. Mitch doesn't fit into that mold perfectly, which means that he's broken and I can't forge a connection with him instead of just looking for the stuff that was already there, you know, and building on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and getting comfortable with letting him be authentic and be himself because he's a very Mm -hmm. authentic and genuine person. And I don't know if I know anyone who cares more. Yeah. Than he does is more loving and caring than him. I'm genuinely bummed when he can't come hang out because he's working or something, even if we're not talking. It's it's just fun to have around and interesting, very interesting thought processes and conversation. But I think that is also that's true across all people. If you can examine your expectations and then your perceptions of them, this is a new concept that I think happened for me earlier this year, around January, February. I was very unhappy. My home life is very stressful. We're a blended family, and it's hard to be a blended family, uh, especially a blended family with teenagers and with a contentious, you know, shared parentage. Uh, and also stuck kind of where we are with very limited ability to change. So that if you don't like where you are, move. Okay, well, if you can't move, <laughs> literally or figuratively, what do you do then? And, and... I think it sort of happened with my ideology around Kieran of I'm just going to choose to love you. I'm going to yeah. choose to let go of all the stuff that drive me crazy that I know I should be upset about. I'm supposed to have these other feelings about. I'm just, I don't care anymore. I just want to love you and just want to enjoy you. And then started wondering how much of my life can I apply that to? Does that apply mm. to you? And it applies to everything. I love it. Everything. I don't discuss my emotions when I first have them because that's my reaction, not my response. And I have learned that I can have my initial reaction be frustrated or angry, and then I get to choose how I act on that. I get to choose if I want to change it to a response or if I want to be reactive or if I don't want to feel that emotion anymore, if I want to respond differently, I can choose that. And a big part of this mindset shift, I guess, is the shift of perception to know that I can choose to change my perception and change my the angle in which I am viewing a situation so that I'm viewing it differently. In my relationship with my stepdaughter is a good example, and she'll probably listen to this, so um, <laughs> <laughs> other ones. But we kept going back and forth of having a really hard time with each other and then getting along really, really great, and it was amazing. And then it would just inexplicably for both of us kind of shift back and forth. And I found myself very stuck on, stuck in between of feeling personally attacked when she didn't want to come back over to our house or when she wanted to spend more time somewhere else or go see friends instead or things like that and was kind of stuck in this 
feeling of I cared a lot. So it was definitely rooted in, I love you. I care about you. I want you to want to be here as well. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to figure this out. Um, and had to choose to let go of anything that felt personal about our relationship and choose to say, you know what, there's so many other factors going on in her life. I'm going to choose not to be a negative factor. I'm going to choose not to be a source of stress as much as I can. I'm going to choose to continue to be authentic with her and be myself and encourage her to be authentic and be herself because I think her natural self is very wonderful and amazing. And I think she's stuck between a lot of different, very controlling factors that try to dictate her behavior and who Mm -hmm. she is. And she is fighting to figure out who she is. And she's also a teenager and that's very difficult place to be in where you're kind of struggling and figuring that out anyway so you're adding on all these extra factors I can choose to be one of those factors or I can choose to learn as much as I can and be a safe place as much as I can and it's still a learning factor and I have to continually choose to look at it from that angle and choose not to be in the mix with it which is hard sometimes but it's my choice to make What's pretty unique about what you've done with both of those kids is like most people when they are up against a wall with a relationship issue, emotional issue, what allows them to break free from some of those personal ties is to just go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is lean into bitterness and be like resentful towards that situation or individual. So meaning what you're doing is like in the middle, which is really healthy. It's like I can either hyper-focus on everything that isn't going well here and what I can't control and try to control it. Or I can find this balance that's like, what can't I really control? Let's let some of that go and let's infuse as much love into the situation as I can. And maybe, you know, for other situations other than like kids and stuff like that, maybe workplace stuff or whatever else, as much positive perception as I can onto this to allow me to navigate this in a way that actually I can be happier and the other people who I'm surrounded with will be happier versus people just leaning into like, well, you know what? I'm just not going to give a shit anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. very different things. There's kind of like those three different places. And I've been in that place too. I've done the, I just don't care anymore. I just don't care. I'm going to be apathetic about it. It didn't work for very long, but I tried it. So I'm just going to keep bringing this up. People who listen to this can just get sick of it and I don't really care, but it's like, (laughs) happiness and I think I talked to you a little bit about this of just uh, talking about that spectrum another example like where on that spectrum will you be the happiest definitely in the middle like what you've elected to try to do with Kieran and with Haley is in the middle you know either of the other ends you're not as happy and I don't think you can be as good of a mother and a good as good of a partner to Chris and as good of a you know person to yourself versus in the middle where you'll be happiest and like That's a great example of just looking at it and it's really obvious what the best choice is for you to be the happiest. And guess what? Like most examples that I'll bring up about this, it's also going to be the best for the people around you. Like we need to break this perception of like, if I do something that's good for me, it means that I'm doing it at the expense of other people always, or that I'm just, I'm not allowed to be like quote unquote selfish at all. Incorrect. Yeah. Well, the research on happiness I'm going to totally forget uh, the name of the Yale professor. Um, who, she has no podcast and everything about it, but is it's really about human connection. So if mm-hmm. you think about all of those things, making meaningful connections with people, I cannot meaningfully connect with you if I'm angry and mm-hmm. frustrated and resentful towards you. And then you're going to wall up and get defensive and then I'll wall up and get defensive. Connection is not happening there. 
and it doesn't have to be rainbows and sunshine, but right. just understanding and connecting on a human level. And um, I've talked with this about with our dad a lot too, because he's kind of a hermit and uh, becoming more hermitish yep. the older he gets and has put some of those shoulds out there. I, you know, I should probably make some friends. I should get out there and more meet people. And I said, well, you know, but then I only want to meet once a month for coffee. I said, there's probably plenty of people who also only want to meet yeah. once a month for coffee. And totally. if that's all you need, that's as much connection as you need to feel very content and happy with your life. There's nothing else you should be doing. Maybe don't hermit up completely, but you're having conversations with people. You are in the community. They're in very isolated events and they're very specific and tailored to what you like. Yeah. You're creating these very specific human connections with other people. I think most people know when they've taken that to an extreme of like pulling themselves back from other people too far. Um, during the pandemic, like I definitely did that to a degree. Uh, there was a point where I remember I went outside to go drive somewhere and the first time in my life I was nervous getting onto the freeway and I thought about it I hadn't been outside in like three weeks we have a one, we had a one-bedroom apartment I hadn't been outside in like three weeks let alone gone and drive dro driven somewhere mm -hmm. I literally hadn't left my apartment not I'm not talking about going to the store I hadn't gone outside of my front door in like three weeks that's too much that's yeah. not good that's not healthy well, well I mean, maybe for anyone. most people at least will benefit from just going out and walking around. Like, and True. and the three weeks obviously was not the most quality of time I could have spent. It was a lot of video games and stuff. And I play with other people and with friends a lot of the time, but still like I was starting to experience adverse effects, which was like fear of a normal day-to-day -day task. Right. That's not good. Um, but I, th I think the, in the case of our dad, that's a great example of, just what you said, you're applying shoulds to like conventional shoulds to yourself, which you might not fit into for what's really best for you. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend just a couple days ago about um, their their partner who has just just dozens of unread text messages from different people <laughs> or hundreds, you know, um, and a lot of it comes from. I don't know, feeling this, it, it was obviously a TikTok because um, TikTok is how everybody learns everything these days. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm speaking for myself. Anyways, uh, where it was like this back and forth between this person having a conversation with themselves in their head. And it's like, you know, just send them a short message that's like, you know, responding to what they say. Well, well then they'll know you're available and then they'll hit you right back and then you have to have a conversation. And all of it is you won't do what you feel like you want to do because it will lead to you feeling trapped in a situation that you're not actually trapped in. FYI, you can do whatever the fuck you want anytime. Um, and so you don't even engage to a degree that would be positive for you and maybe your relationship with somebody else. Just like, you know, my friend's partner and just like dad, it's like you think the, the level to which I need something will potentially be perceived as, I don't care enough to do more or whatever it might be, or, you know, not willing to sit down and talk more frequently than this other person wants. And so I'm just not even going to do what I'm comfortable doing. That's terrible. It's like, but it's really hard to just accept on the outset, I am going to engage in this interaction in a way that works for me and do my best to listen and, you know, talk with the other person about what's interesting to them too. But at the point where I'm not feeling it, just gonna stop because at work I don't get to do that at work I have to have these conversations but I'm getting paid to do that outside of that 
why should I feel like I need to do that? Or alternatively too, are you not setting the right expectations for yourself up front or the right boundaries up front? I have I met um, uh, someone who has become a friend and I like them a lot. And I also know that I have limited social. I enjoy my friends. I love hanging out with them. I like being social. And I also need to recuperate from that. I don't want to spend my whole weekend with you people as yeah. much as I love you. Or a variety of you, even like one day, maybe. <laughs> you know, I want one day where I don't have to if I don't want to. Yeah. So, you know, they were kind of new to the area, and I immediately introduced them to all of my other friends who they might enjoy and tried to connect them as much as possible because I know that I do not want to see you every week. Or I might want to, but I don't have the bandwidth yeah. to see you every week and do that. So I'm going to immediately connect you and also follow up of, you know, I'm. I'm just not good at this. This is not really who I am. I yeah. doesn't mean I don't like you, but I've gotten much better at being very clear and upfront about that so that people know I am not ignoring you. I do care about you. Just to be clear, this is just kind of who I am. Yeah. And my uh, some of our good friends who we're, we're going to Gen Con with and spend a lot of time with, I've done the same thing of I think we would spend a lot more time together if I was more open to it, and I love them and love hanging out with them. It's not depleting for me, but they know I need alone time. Mm-hmm. They know that I need some rest time. They know I need time in my studio. I need to go create. I need to fill up my bucket, and that is going to trump almost any other activity if it's not balanced enough. That's how yeah. I refill. But since they know that up front, there's no like, oh, I feel stressed or a social anxiety because Brooke doesn't want to come hang out with us or because Brooke wasn't there and Chris came by himself. You know, our kids are the same age by himself to the play date you know you knew ahead of time that yeah. I was going to spend six hours in my studio today and that was my time and I love you so much and I'll see you tomorrow or yeah. I'll see you next weekend uh, so it doesn't become a you're avoiding us or why don't you ever want to come and hang out because I'm clear about it yeah well the the crux of that is make sure that people know how you feel about them and if that isn't enough and they need something else superficial on top of it, or maybe not even superficial, some people are super, super extroverted and maybe they just don't have a lot of other friends. And so, you know, they do need a lot more from you. But again, that's not a you problem. But point is, is make sure people know that you love them and how you feel about them and that you do love whatever it is about them, whether it's spending time with them or whatever it may be. And, uh, Again, if that's not enough and like they need more and it's something that you can't give, that's not a you problem. That's a them problem and they need to figure that out. But the expectation for yourself should not be that I match them at what their needs are in a way that I know that I'm very deficient in being able to meet that. If you're close, right? If somebody's like, I would really love if you express to me a little bit more frequently how you feel about me, you know, whether it's your partner or a good friend or whatever, and you're like, I feel like what you're asking is for me to go from 70% to 75%. That's doable. It's a little bit uncomfortable for me, but I do care about you. I'm willing to do that. That's one thing. But if they're like, I need you from 70 to 150, I can't provide that to you while providing for everything else in my life at the same time. I think that's unreasonable. Um, We had a couple friend of ours, Mike and Mel, shout out Mike and Mel. Love you guys. Came and stayed with us for a week. Fucking awesome people. And like day one, I was like, listen, Here's how this is going to go down. Um, I can't be with you guys 24-7. I just, it's not going to work and I won't be happy that way, which means I won't enjoy spending time with you that way. So can't expect that. There'll be times that I just sit in my office and play video games or work and I ignore you guys. And I'm not ignoring you on a personal level. It's just that then when I come out of my room, 
I'm refreshed and I'm like ready to go and have a good time with you guys. And I hope that you understand that. And of course they did. We've known them for a really long time. They totally get it. But you need to be unapologetic about it too. Um, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time if you haven't practiced this. This has taken time for me to really get to this point uh, where I'm just like, I really don't give a shit. Like I'm going to make sure you know I love you and want to spend time with you, but then I'm going to do what I need for me um, while keeping your needs in mind and serving you as best I can within my capacity. Um, but don't feel bad. And, and I, I'm not saying this to you because you do. I'm just saying to, to anybody who listens, like, don't feel bad about that at all. Like, put your own mask on before you help other people, <laughs> you know? This is probably a totally different topic. Um, we were talking for a while, but um, I realized when 2020, everything shut down for COVID, and uh, what a lot of people experienced is situational depression or situational anxiety. So it's not a chemical deficiency or, or imbalance in your brain. It's actually caused by a situation or experience that you're having. Um, and so I saw that a lot with people who never experienced depression or anxiety before. So they had no coping skills and no skills. Mm. And part of that, um, Chris struggled not necessarily with depression, anxiety about it, but almost a sort of triggered almost a midlife crisis because he is, we realized the only reason I leave the house is because he makes me. <laughs> so I was completely fine. <laughs> completely <laughs> fine to be at home. I'm like, this is great. I'm not even having to fake reasons why I don't want to go right. to the movie or the park or, or go do all these activities. But he used to take the kids every weekend too and go and do stuff. And now everyone was at home yeah. and I'm great at the home stuff. Like I will devise activities all day long at home. My world is at home. My studio is at home. I'm an artsy, craftsy, fartsy person. <laughs> so I'll just get a new hobby. Like yeah. it'll be fine. And he was antsy and did not know right. what to do with himself um which leads to that it'd be an interesting topic to talk with people who, where that partnership is so different like it is for us where if I never had to leave the house I'd be pretty much fine with that like once a week is probably the most I need but yeah. I also like work is enough social interaction that I don't really Same. need anything else and I'm married to someone who likes to go out and do stuff they want to be doing stuff and getting out and about all the time and um, it's interesting I've noticed with him that some of that has lingered that anxiety getting on the freeway of mm. well it's going to be a lot of work to go to the farmer's market <laughs> I just don't know if it's worth the effort like that is the opposite of 2019 Christopher speaking <laughs> 2022 Christopher the threshold is a lot higher for getting out and doing stuff and he's also less happy than he was before and he is happier when he does get out and does those things um but it, there's always that kind of pull of sometimes I get up the gumption I'm like okay let's go to the farmer's market together it'll be great I don't really want to go but we should you know then we go and yeah. it's fine and sometimes he wants to go and then I'm the detractor of oh, but I'm so comfortable in my house attire mm -hmm. um and then it it dampens that for the other person because they're now dragging you as though you're yeah. another child who doesn't want to go. But an interesting dichotomy of that push and pull between couples or life partners in particular on getting on the same page when you are so opposite and need different levels of activity. Yeah. Okay, hold on. I have to pee. And then I want to ask you about that, actually, <laughs> but I'm going to pee my pants. <laughs> same. Oh, <my> <laughs> All right. 
Okay, so I think you, and we're back, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. I think you actually kind of answered the question I was going to ask a little bit, but I think a lot of people with lockdown, they realize that maybe they weren't as happy going out as much as they were, um, in large part because of the stress of feeling the need to make excuses if they just didn't want to go. I think a lot of that was healthy for a lot of people. At the very least, maybe they realized that they can just say now, I don't really want to go. They don't have to make up some excuse for why they're not going to mm -hmm. something somebody invites them to. Um, but I was curious, although I think you kind of already answered it, of like whether or not Chris was, you know, happier now, realizing like, oh, I actually didn't want to go out as much as I did. But it sounds like actually he just realized how much effort that takes because he didn't have to really do that for a while. And now he doesn't go out as much, but he's also not as happy. Yes, I think there's there's effort involved, but it's sort of... Uh, you can't relate to this, sorry, but when you have little kids mm -hmm. and they just have a trunk load of stuff that you just have to take with them, especially if you have the diaper situation happening, but even my four-year-old, we always have a change of clothes in general. I've regretted it almost 100% <laughs> of the time when we don't because she makes choices um, <laughs> that make me regret it. Uh, so there's just extra things and you have, so there's more preparation or like you're going camping. There's a lot of preparation that you need to go camping. And if you are doing it all the time, it becomes rote. You get really good at it. You get really efficient. It just becomes, and you don't even really notice it anymore. It just becomes a part of the experience. So it's not as much of a burden. It's just habit now. When you break out of that, so you only go camping once a year, that's a multiple day preparation thing and feels mm. like a lot. And then they come home and you unload. You're not efficient at it. You forget things. You got to go through lists for things. First have a new baby, it feels like a lot and you have too much or, you know, um, I, we went out to the pool the other day. My daughter said, well, where are my clothes to get changed out of? And I was like, I assumed you'd be in the pool longer, just lay in the sun for a while. <laughs> There's, I didn't bring your clothes. I don't, I don't know why I didn't do that. I just did it. Yeah. You know, I feel more relaxed about it, but it just sort of becomes row. It's not a thing. So I think that's a lot of what has happened, especially with him is, and, and now there's teenagers who don't want to go. So mm. they're happy once they get there, but it's that goading people into coming and doing the fun thing. It's a lot of energy. Yeah, you want people to be excited to jump up and go and take some of that burden off. And if others don't want to, that adds another element to it. Um, and just being out of habit. And, and then you add the complexity of we've gone to something and tried to do the pre-research of is it open and then it's not open and their hours are altered or mm. that it closed down and nothing updated to say that they closed down or um, you're mitigating those and that's now a risk factor when you're going out that what you planned may not actually <laughs> exist and then are you still feeling high energy enough or everyone's feeling positive enough to pivot and do something else. Is it, isn't that a huge... Uh, indicator of how people are different when you're the type who's like, I must know that this has a high chance of success before engaging in it versus people that are like, yeah, let's just show up. And if they're closed, we'll find something else to do. And I'm like, no, incorrect. <laughs> Not me. Wrong answer. <laughs> I will call yes. them and I don't want to call them, but I, I will, will call, call them, them. <laughs> to figure out whether or not they're open. I will not call them. I have severe phone anxiety. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's super common. Just it is. I I don't know why it is. I've been starting I'm fine to piece it mine together on so. the phone. Go ahead. You know? Do you know why? No, you please. Have? I want to oh. hear your your thoughts first. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. What, I have always been this way for as long as I can remember. Uh. I would not. I'd have mom call 
things. I think even friends were kind of hard for me to call. I don't like calling friends. I don't, I don't, the only people I answer phone calls from are my husband and my close family members. And even then it might be like, oh, how much time do I have? I don't know how long this is, what this conversation is about. So I don't know how long to plan for. Is this a five minute thing I can fit in? I have to psychologically prepare. Yeah. Um, but even for doctor's appointments, which we've had, I've had some very complex stuff that I needed to be on top of. I call once a week and I line them all up in a row. Mm-hmm. And I have to have a note about what I'm calling for each of them and the phone numbers and everything right at hand or it will not happen. But there's this one block and they have to just go one in a row or I will not call. It's taken me four months to follow up on to get a new sleep device. And they didn't call me. (laughs) And I have their number and I finally called them last week and they were closed on Friday, the day that I called. (laughs) So I filled out a web form and hopefully they'll get back Uh. to me. But I don't know why, because it's never traumatizing. It's always fine. I'm always fine once I'm on it. But I do have to gear up to make the phone call, and I have to plan more time. I also have no concept of time at all, at all. What do you mean? Um, they they did a study with people with ADHD in particular, but I think applies to a lot of neurodivergency, of asking people to read a book and stop when they thought it had been 60 seconds. <laughs> All right. This is good. I think you can know where this is going. Neurotypical people, on average, were pretty close within about 10 seconds or so over or under. ADHD people were like, the closest they got was like 30 seconds off at 30 seconds. Wow. Uh, but most were around like 15 seconds to like two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> they thought two minutes, three minutes. And I am absolutely the same. I can, I'll try and estimate how long it'll take me to get ready or something. And I just have learned I need to add on 30 to 45 minutes <laughs> to that because I think everything's faster than it is. Uh, yeah, okay. I just, like, if you were to ask me, oh, how long does it take you to get ready? Or how long does it take you to shower? I'd be like, oh, I could totally shower in 10 minutes. False lies, dirty, mm. dirty lies. Yeah. I will think that it's 10 minutes, but that would be if I was super timed and focused and under a severe crunch, I could probably do it otherwise. No, you're talking 30, 45 minutes. What's interesting is I think that I exhibit some of the same behaviors as people who are ADHD, but mine are for different reasons. So Stephen, one of my best friends and I, it, it's a total meme between us of my ability to gauge time as well. But I, I genuinely don't think it's because I'm ADHD. I think it's because I just, I just don't care. So I just don't focus on how long a thing takes. Like, but I'll be confident that I'm like, yeah, I just spent, you know, 10 minutes doing that thing. And he's really good at gauging time. And I'm very confident in his estimates typically. And he's like, it'll literally be like 30 minutes, like very far off. Like no fucking way. That is, it blows my mind. Uh, but if I really had to, if somebody was like, can you really honestly tell me how long it tip- typically takes you to do this thing? I could probably tell you cause I can like go back and remember enough that I can probably get close, but certainly at least just offhandedly like, I'll just throw out a number, but it's because I'm just like not really thinking that hard about it and I just don't care. Um, but I, there's other things you've talked about today too that I'm like, I, I do that as well, but I don't think that's because I'm ADHD. I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm in denial, but. I don't know. I told you I thought you were ADHD and you said, I'm not, I don't have any, there's <laughs> nothing about me. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, for the record, I my depression was entirely unsuccessfully treated by antidepressants and then Vyvanse changed my life 
just brought everything into focus and order. Okay, okay, I need to talk to you about this. Actually, this is one of the things that I thought about earlier that I want to ask you about, and it's perfectly lined up with this. This is literally what I was going to talk to you about. (laughs) I feel like if I explain this to you right now, you are going to make fun of me so bad because I just explained how I like do things that are ADHD that is not because I have ADHD. So I am a classic case of I want to do my laundry, right? So I go to get my laundry, and as I'm taking them downstairs, I notice that, you know, the front door is ajar. So I close the front door, and in doing that, I notice that, like, the handle on the door is dirty. So I go and clean the handle, right? It's And then I'm like, mm-hmm. man, I, why am I doing all this housework without listening to music? I might as well enjoy music while I'm doing this. So I go and I turn music on. <laughs> and... I can push through it and I can really focus on what I need to do, I think is why I think that maybe I don't have it. I sort of let myself, you know, engage in the distractions and I'm typically relatively aware of them. Um, but, oh my God, I could, I could do that all day mm-hmm. and never get the original thing done for sure. Yes. And I, I think that is a misconception about it of, yes, you can. If you couldn't, you would have been diagnosed a long time ago if you were completely dysfunctional and couldn't actually do it. How much energy does it take to focus? Like if you're like, okay, I am going to do the laundry. I'm not going to look at anything else. How much focus and energy would you have to employ to, Mm. because you're going to notice all those things. Right. You're not going to filter them out. They're not going to be filtered out by your brain the way that they should be to actually get to the laundry and then stay and complete it especially something that you you are not naturally going to enter flow about. Yeah. So activities like doing the laundry or housework. Well, I wouldn't say it takes a lot of energy, but it pains me. So like I can just make the choice of beelining it, you know, literally and figuratively with certain tasks, but it will like, it makes me cringe. Mm-hmm. Like just thinking about like ignoring those other little things for sure. And I'm, Okay, I think I might, because <laughs> I'm just thinking, okay, but here's, I don't know, man, because I'm like, as an adult, I feel like I exhibit more behavior that would reinforce that, but I don't know if I just wasn't as perceptive as a child. But or I, it might have displayed differently as a child, and you've learned different coping mechanisms and skills. Yeah. So an example from mine that my doctor picked up on was I've had people comment throughout my career, my adult life, you are so organized. I wish I was as organized as you. You're just so organized. You're like, God damn it, I have to. Yes. I'm like, do you know what my life would look like? If this calendar is not color-coded, it will be chaos, okay? It's color-coded because oh. it has to be. But it it's those are that's a strategy that I've come up with that if – we just switched systems at work from Microsoft Outlook to Gmail. So all my systems are gone, including OneNote, which I'm going to probably file for an accommodation for because they don't want to give it to me. Um, so all my systems are gone. My calendar, all the color coding on my calendar, and it doesn't let me set categories, so I have to memorize. I've been using the same color coding system for years. Mm. So I know, like, sales is orange. Product in IT. Product is red and it is purple so like i know what all the colors are but still having to go through and memorize those categories and make sure i get it because now the color schemes are different it's not the exact same colors that i had before was i think there were for the first two weeks i missed multiple meetings or was late to multiple meetings or showed up not 
not realizing what the meeting was about because I'm not used to having to go in and read the agenda and figure it out. I can just look at my calendar and know I'm spending a lot of time with marketing today. I'm going to get in marketing mindset and this is going to be fine, but it can see across my calendar what my week's going to look like just Mm -hmm. at a glance. I had to go through and retrain all of that and it just threw my life into chaos. Couldn't find anything. It was awful, but those are strategies, and on my calendars aren't combined either. It's just it's been a nightmare. <laughs> but <laughs> but those are that's a strategy that I've also talked to Kieran about. Of this might not work for you. This has been effective for me. If it doesn't work for you, you need to explore other strategies and figure them out. Because once you have them, it takes some of that mental load off, where you're constantly doing uh, a ticker tape across of here's what's coming up next and what I need to keep in mind and everyone's schedules and when it's in being prepared and I only work on deadlines because I procrastinate. I need a deadline to mm. accomplish something. So you have probably developed a series of skills or structure around your life yeah. that enables you to keep it all together. Oh, I absolutely have. I. It's funny because the way that I would describe it is that I have learned to not rely on my own internal system and mm-hmm. memory is usually the... I don't know, medium that I would um, say is my memory. I just learned to have learned to not trust it because I will be like, I mean, it's as simple as like, I'm in the shower. We have almost no shower gel left. We have more in the pantry. I just need to get it. And that's one of the last things that I do is soap. And I will literally sit there and like a mantra, a mantra in my head, don't forget shower gel, don't forget shower. And that lasts for like eight fucking seconds. And then I'm thinking about nine other things. Yes. <laughs> like, and I am so gone onto a million different topics by the time I'm out of the shower that there's no way I remember to go and get that. So instead, I'm just like, yeah, that, that's just, I, I, I have developed systems for sure. Between my calendar management, I've gotten the same comments about, wow, you're very organized. Like somebody will be talking to me about something and I'm like, I'm just taking notes, but I'm listening like oh interesting like where do you take notes in and i like will show them my asana board or something and they're like whoa like you've got this really well fleshed out and i'm like i have to <laughs> you don't understand yeah <laughs> yes oh man my manager made a comment i think one of my last reviews or i raised a red flag about something that i could see doom impending impending yeah. doom um even though it wasn't really mine uh and he made a comment where I think to someone else and to me of, um, you know, you really have this uncanny ability to see the future and what is going to happen based on this series of events. So like, so when you say that something is going poorly and going to go wrong, I listen because you have just this weird uncanny ability mm. to see it. And I thought about that a lot because no one's ever given me quite that feedback before or that commentary and was doing more research about some of the spectrum of both autism and ADHD and one of the things that comes up consistently is um, people with ADHD are um, almost predispositioned to recognize patterns and be mm-hmm. able to see the full spectrum, the whole story. So they can see all the patterns, see what's happening, and then watch it unfold before it's happened. So seeing those series of events, which is absolutely what I apply at work all the time, is being able to see these context clues and see what's going on and already know 10 steps down the road what that result is going to look like and then what are and then start splitting off what are some of the variables that are going to change that end result 
but that's a pattern seeking behavior that my mind just gravitates to that I can just see. And mm. it's confusing when people can't see that like doom is coming. <laughs> this project is going to crash and burn. <laughs> How come you can't see it? Well, what I always find interesting is like there are two types of people, people who are comfortable exploring hypotheses and potential outcomes and people who are not. And I think there's a number of things that probably lead people to being more or less comfortable with that. But I'm, I love exploring potential outcomes. If it's something that's interesting to me, of course, and relevant to me, and I have some subject uh, matter knowledge about it. But um, my last job, it was video calls all day. And my job was to consult with other people who were doing actual work on what the answer to all of our problems should be. So it was solutioning constantly, constantly. And I think I'm really, really good at it. And I think it's for that same reason as you of like, somebody will come to me with a proposal to a, for a solution to a problem. And I'm like, I don't think that will solve our problem. And here's like exactly why, you know, but then I, th I think I'm also good at, if I can pat myself on the back of like helping them walk themselves towards the same conclusion that I got to, um, and train them on kind of how to do the same thing if they're interested in doing that. Uh, but yeah, I, that's certainly something that I do too. And I can do it with very little context typically, mm -hmm. like unless it's something very specific or niche, you know, like, but it, just the way that somebody is structuring, you know, the data in their report. I may know nothing about what the data is relevant to, but I can just tell by the way that they are describing it or like um, where the, what their source was or something like that. I can start to identify problems and be like, I wouldn't trust this because of this. Like, did you check this, you know, or, or look at it mm -hmm. in this way? Um, very comfortable in that situation. I got uh, feedback. We did a bunch of peer stuff at eBay and two of my colleagues gave feedback to me that was almost similar, uh, which was we take the projects or ideas or the what we've worked on so far to Brooke so she can tell us all the reasons why it won't work. <laughs> and then she'll tell you what you can tweak instead so that it will be successful. It's like, well, at least there's a positive end. I always, I never, I always try to give people an alternative and not just poo poo, like, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> it just sucks. Go back yeah. to the drawing board. But two completely, they had not consulted ahead of time either. That was so funny. And I realized I do. I do that. <laughs> I do that. I'll, but I'll tell you all that, like, here are the parts that are not going to work about your plan. Here's what you could substitute with it and try differently that would have a higher likelihood of success. And do have people who frequently bring, like, here's what I'm thinking of doing. I have my draft written, poke holes in it, and then help me patch them. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I love doing that, too. Yeah. I love problem solving and figuring things out. Yeah. The, the only thing that I found in my last job was just that doing it for the number of hours a day that I was doing it was exhausting. So this job is the opposite. I have no team. I had like 40 people that I was over across like three different teams. And so with relatively separate things that they were all working on. So it wasn't like I was really focused on this one team that primarily has, you know, this limited scope of things that they were working on. Um, so it was really exhausting to go from a call about something totally different to something totally different and do that every 30 minutes to an hour for nine hours a day. It's just too much. Whereas this job, it is almost all doing actual work and setting things up and re but I love that too. And I have enough experience in doing what I'm doing that like it's quickly rewarding because I don't have to do as much research before I get to the, the answer, the solution. If I don't, if I need to get somewhere anyways, um, 
But yeah, a blend of that would be really nice. Uh, I, it do, that doesn't really exist, though. Like, most jobs are you're either doing the work or you're telling other people what to do with the work. So I am kind of, up until this point, I need a few more people who do the work, I think, because mm-hmm. I love doing the strategy and getting it started. And then I need someone else to finish it because I've gotten bored with it or I've already moved on to the next project, which is where I struggle the most is all my stuff overlaps. I have like five major projects and I also run a team and maintain a system um, while changing and migrating to new systems. So I struggle when I get to the point of, okay, I've built most of it or I've just about finished. I run into a minor roadblock most of the time that I need to do some research but can't cover it enough focus time to complete it. And as soon as I get interrupted, I have to start yeah. back over again yeah. and schedule out more time. And so some stuff ends up not being finished the way that I would like it to do. Or I can get it started and, and mostly there and then have to just kind of let it roll on its own or hand it off to somebody and not be able to see it through all the way. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting. It's hard to find that balance, I think, for sure. Maybe it's better for companies that are bigger because they have a little bit more bloat. Um, but at least startup-wise, in my experience, is like it's, it's either what you describe or it's like you're super small and scrappy and so everybody's stretched a little thin, but you're the main person who can really strategize, but you've also got to try to get some of this other stuff done. Um, That was my last job at the beginning. And then as I built more of a team, um, it was just the strategization all the time. But I think it it was just the fact that it was just meeting after meeting Mm -hmm. all day. That was extremely draining. Um, And I, I hold myself to a really high standard of bringing a positive energy to work and, you know, at least, at least down, right. To the people that work on my teams up, I'll be much more negative or, uh, you know, whatever, be more authentic or just I'll let myself, you know, express more negative emotions, I guess. Um, which most of the time I was meeting with my team. So it was just really exhausting. Uh, my colleague just told me that I have the most calming and soothing voice in meetings, which is also the first I've ever heard of this feedback. You do. I haven't been in a meeting with you, but you do in real life. <laughs> but I told mom this, and she says that we do the same thing with our voices when we're talking. Mm. She said we both drop them, our voices, mm. a little bit. <laughs> we're in a subject. <laughs> I, thought, I don't know. There's a lot of similarities. <laughs> More similarities yeah. adding up. Our jobs are almost exactly the same. I know. A lot of our experience is the same. It's wild. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. We're basically twins, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like there is good reasoning why, I don't know, we've been as close as we were and have matching tattoos. Yes. And it's been pretty, it's pretty effortless for us to get along. Mm-hmm. The fact that I could go up to your house in Idaho for Thanksgiving a couple of years ago and it not be miserable for me is like very telling. Although staying with Sam and Kevin, Kevin's so chill. And Sam and I, the older that we get, and now that she's not with her ex-husband, she's a different person, and it's great. Now it's great. But if I was, like, staying with her and her ex-husband, I would have been really uncomfortable mm-hmm. at times. But that was all him. You know, that's not the real Sam. Yeah. Um, but even even with, like, Mitch and Sarah, I love both of them absolutely to death. But I just, we're just not on the same wavelength like you and I are where it wouldn't be just such a natural synergy. But yeah, being in Idaho, I was like in that small room upstairs and like around kids like all day. 
like two things I don't enjoy and they're like <laughs> actually a big deal for me. And it was actually Did not really have fun. your computer for video yeah, games. Yeah, a lot of my comfort, yeah. comfort items and it was great. It's fun. But I, I also, last thing, I do really well around parents who treat their kids like adults, like where it makes sense. So Steven, my friend, he treats his kids like adults and his kids act like real human beings instead of just like whiny, you know, mouth breathers. And so they're fun to be around because they have real conversations with you. Yes. It's amazing how many people say, oh my gosh, the vocabulary, your kid has such a good vocabulary. Well, if you speak to them like they're a human, they soak up everything. They mimic everything. Yeah. I, Callie had the, I was learning to use the iPad the other day because I realized I had a day without childcare <laughs> before we <laughs> left here. So she got some time while I was working and said, oh, I'm going to watch a different show. Said, okay, well, what show are you going to watch? Don't worry, mom. It's not inappropriate. <laughs> and she can't even say the word. It's not inappropriate. <laughs> I said, so okay, you're good. <laughs> you know, I, like, I can't even respond to that. Oh, and all man. the time she's staying, she's been in speech therapy and her speech therapist just dies every time she comes in because most of the kids she works with don't speak. It's generally their learning sounds or learning to speak fundamentally. And she has an extensive vocabulary and just says very adult things because she's around adults and spoken to like she's just one of us yeah. all the time. And Kieran was the same. And so she just said he has a lot to say. Yeah, but it's true. If you treat how you treat someone, they will often reciprocate, including children. Yeah. I, I'm always blown away. Your kids are a little bit older now, but especially when they're younger, when they would be like throwing a little bit of a tantrum about something and you just, you're like non-reactionary. Mm-hmm. You're just like, wow, that's a lot of emotion you're expressing right now. And I'm like, <laughs> oh shit. Like, yeah, you're just like laying it up or just, just like you would call out an adult. Like, well, I'm upset. Like, yeah, I can see that. Like, what are you thinking right now? And just like, you're so even keel about it. And I'm like whoa, I would have totally gotten baited in and just acted like a typical, like stereotypical parent, you know, and instead like it diffused things and they know they're not getting anywhere with you and you're just chill, just doing whatever you're doing. You don't even like turn and, or anything and turn towards them. And yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> the worst thing is when you're around a parent and their kid like starts to show signs of like throwing a tantrum and they panic and you're like, oh no. Here goes the barter system of like, okay, what is a parent going to have to give to the kids so they don't throw the tantrum, which will just lead to this cycle of them just manipulating the parent into getting what they want all the time yeah, and being an insufferable smart. child. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that also comes from a lot of fear of judgment and the side eye that you can get as a parent too. And if you, it's hard to stop caring about that. And I've just gone through enough counseling and therapy and parenting classes to no, this happens to everybody. Yeah. And I don't care if you're going to judge me about it because you're not coming home with my kid at night. But I've also utilized, I think I mentioned this before, I utilize a lot of those skills on other adults that I learned to do with yeah. my kids. Even down to verbalize, I verbalize a lot of my emotions because um, I realize that adults are almost as bad sometimes at reading emotions as kids are or autistic kids oh, yeah. are. So there'll be a lot of... Yeah, I know that that came off as probably really frustrated or really angry. I was really, really focused when I was talking through that. It's going to be fine. I'm okay with it. I'm feeling a little bit frustrated about this in the moment. Or I'm frustrated about something else. I know I can hear it in my tone right now. I just want you to know I'm not frustrated with you. 
people need to hear that. If you can verbalize that, it clears up so much anxiety for other people who were thinking you were angry with them or frustrated with them. And you weren't even paying attention to what they were saying. You know, you were gone somewhere else. I do that so much constantly. Okay. Well, I want to ask you about this now because I feel like that's something that I don't encounter with other people very frequently. I, the first podcast that Sam and I did that we ended up re-recording, um, one of the things that I didn't like about it the most, the audio really killed me. It just, I had the wrong setup. It was not working. But the other thing listening back through it um, was I have a tendency to overly set up premise and context and I I want people to really fully understand what it is that I'm trying to say um, to the point that it's exhaustive and totally unnecessary and actually much less interesting to listen to. So I was just talking to Steph about this the other day where I was like, I explain stuff in a way that 99% of people will probably understand what it is that I'm getting at when I could put in, I could say half as much as I do and 90% would still get it. And so the disparity there, right? Like saying way less and yet most people still get it would make it much more interesting to communicate with me and much less exhausting for me. But I, part of why I do that is just that like, I don't like people to misunderstand my intentions and I typically have very positive intentions. Um, And I really don't like when that's misconstrued and it's my own fault. If somebody just doesn't get it and I'm doing everything I can to explain my position um, and doing a good job of it. There's not much more I can do there, but yeah, I'm exhaustive about making sure people mostly understand my intentions. So the emotional side of things, for sure, I do that constantly of like, uh, I express that in a way that you probably came across like this. And what I actually meant was this, just so you know, I'm constantly like anticipating their reaction. And it's funny because it's not out of an insecure place. It's just a genuine desire for them to understand what I meant. I think you can do that succinctly, though, too. Yes. Oh, for sure. And sorry, what I was getting at was like, I want to get better at, you know, using not nearly as many words Mm -hmm. to still get the same point across. Yeah. And it probably doesn't even need to be in every conversation, depending on the context of who you're using it the most with. So I I use it with my team, my on my team, but it's a, it'll be sprinkled in generally around a tough conversation of, I know this is a really frustrating situation. I'm working on this for you. We're working together. I really want to make sure, I want to do everything I can to be, make sure you're successful or to ensure you're successful, you know, whatever it is so that my intention is still there with them, but they don't need it every conversation. Mm-hmm. We need it when something difficult happened, that reassurance of, I'm still on your side. We're in this together my intention is to help you as much as I can or to facilitate this and be your spokesperson and your job or your role within this is, is X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. But most people don't name emotions. Yeah. A lot of people aren't even aware of like what they're feeling themselves or expressing themselves necessarily until later, you know, looking back, they can usually see it. I feel like, but certainly not that quickly. And I also don't think that they read people quickly enough that they can see as it's happening, Mm -hmm. the impact that it's having and dial back and address it. Yeah. That's really uncommon. We also tend to feel like we're the only ones that feel this way or that run into this problem, which 
is parenting is a great example of this. Those people who are getting all stressed out and freaking out, they're feeling like people are going to judge me. I'm the only person whose kid has a tantrum or who doesn't know how to handle the tantrum when in that moment saying, man, I've been there. That happens to everybody. You're doing great. It can feel weird if you've never said that before, but even passing someone in the grocery store, I have said that to parents when, you know, their kids having a hard time with their freaking of like, you're doing great. Been there. I know that feeling you're doing, you're doing great, you know? Yeah. And I've had a couple, I haven't had very many people do that to me, but you know, once or twice that sort of reassurance, which can feel a little bit awkward. They're acknowledging that you're struggling right now, but also creates that point of connection yeah. of a human to human where we all experience these things. We all experience frustration, disappointment, anger, happiness, hopefully joy, <laughs> hopefulness. We, those are just parts of our human experience and they are shared in different forms. They might look a little different, but fundamentally it's consistent. And those are the things that connect us together. Do you self-deprecate to make other people feel comfortable? Um, no, hmm. not usually. I don't like it when other people do it either. You don't like when they do it to try to make you feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. I do not like it when people are self-deprecating because huh. there's often a little bit of insecurity and a little bit of truth to it. Yeah. And they are then highlighting what they're most insecure about, and it's often a bid for reassurance. Right, right. But that's why I was wondering, I, I do it, but it's genuine, like, I would honestly describe myself as one of the most secure, least insecure people that I know. I have things that I struggle with, um, real challenges that I'm working through and things like that, but very few of them, I would say, are born out of insecurity, which is, I'm really fortunate. Um, and so I use that as a tool for that exact reason is that I cannot stand when somebody is like, goading you into reassuring them about something. Um, but no, mine is like, I'll talk about a struggle that I'm having or something that I'm not good at or, you know, like express a failure, explain a failure. And in order to open up, you know, the mm -hmm. doors to other people, but I think I hope, and I've had feedback that this typically is the case that people do get the sense that like, I'm not at all doing it because I just want attention or something like that. Um, it's not always effective in the immediate, but I have had people that have come back after a conversation where they see me do it. And then they're more comfortable talking to me about what's going on with them because they're like, you're so comfortable with expressing your own failures or insecurities or, you know, whatever, not insecurities, but, um, that I felt like I could talk about them with you because you're clearly not going to judge me for them. I wondered if you did the same. I think that's different. When I think of self-deprecating, it's the people who, make it kind of into a joke. Yeah, I was about to say, huh, I'm so bad at this thing, right, guys? Yeah. Oh, no, you're great at it. Oh, yeah. sorry, I got to flip through all my notes to get back to it. I'm just so, you know, disorganized. Yeah. And I'm like, then figure it out. I don't have any <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> empathy for this. But I am very open with my team about things I'm just, that I'm not good at or that are harder for me. And I've been very open about how I function and how I work. Um, to the extent that I actually have had a number of colleagues when um, they have had a, mostly their children, um, and one with, I think, a spouse who had a neuro, thought that they were neurodivergent, either ADHD or autism, come and say, hey, can I talk to you about this? I don't really know what to do here. This is yeah. what I'm seeing. I'm worried about it. Should I be worried? Does this look normal? And be able to talk through it because I am very open about ad almost advocating. I guess I'm kind of an advocate. 
for it. I'm very comfortable talking about it, but I think it makes the workplace better. Yeah. And I also invite the same from them. Like what, like I have um, one, um, someone I work with who's struggling right now and with anxiety and some depression and they've never experienced it before. Mm. They think it might be ADHD. And um, we were able to talk pretty openly about it and then talk through, okay, what kind of work schedule do you need? You're experiencing insomnia and mornings are just not happening for you. What do we need to accommodate that? Knowing that I'm completely open to that and think people need to be able to work tailored to where their strengths are as long as you're still getting outcomes. I'm an outcome-based leader, I guess. I don't really care when you work <laughs> as long as it covers what we need. Um, but able to really talk through that and make accommodations and you know, same for someone who had a child that they think is they're struggling in school and they think they are ADHD of, you know, what am I really looking at here and what does that look like? I can consume books, but there's so much out there. Yeah. Um, so I think it does open up, you know, even somewhere like I don't submit my expense reports until I get a final warning about them. <laughs> at work uh but i will approve yours so if i haven't approved your expense report wait how is this couple days um i know that i'm not going to get around to submitting my reports mm. i'm not going to harass you about yours but i want you to know you what you can expect from me is that i will approve your reports right i will never remember to remind you about them or anything i don't do mine and also, I don't do mine. So <laughs> if you don't get around to yours, we'll do whatever exception process we need to to get it approved because I don't do them. And had an, an employee say, hey, I think this got lost in your inbox because they also know I have 450 emails in my inbox right now. Um, again, the switch to Gmail has wrecked uh, my life yeah. completely. Uh, I think it got lost in your inbox. Here's the link to it. Will you approve it? Because they know they can reach me on Slack anytime and I will respond if you need something from me. Like I've yeah. been very upfront about those things. And then also I don't need them to understand and I don't need to understand them. I just need, we just need to respect each other. I need to respect that this works best for you and this is how you can be effective. I don't need to understand why you need it that way. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. It, it can kind of go either way. It's either way. It's like, if you can explain to me without giving me a ton of details, what it is that you need and the reasoning behind it, meaning like, if you're like, I need to work really odd hours and I'm like, that'll make it really difficult for us to have one-on-ones and there's a variety of other complications. I'm not just shooting it down because it's different. Um, so you need to help me understand what value this brings to you. Um, then that's sufficient. I don't need to know every single detail, but if it is going to make things complicated, like I need to understand the reasoning or it is really nice when somebody does feel comfortable enough to just really share something with you. So you totally understand it. Cause then you're like, Huh, now I'm thinking about solutions for them as well because mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I, they do need this and I want to try to accommodate that. So, it, yeah, I, I remember after we made a big hire, my last job, we hired like, I don't know, 20 people or something, new people um, within the span of like six weeks, two different teams got onboarded, two different hiring groups got onboarded. And once they got up to speed, we would do these things every week of like spotlights of different people and did a spotlight like for myself or whatever. And I normally it's like we talk about a book that we read recently or one of our hobbies or whatever. And I had nothing prepared. So I just basically mm-hmm. told them like my mental health journey and like what, what I was like before depression, junior year, junior year, and then how that's impacted me and how that impacts me today and like how I cope with it and things that I've learned with it. And I got like 12 DMS like within a day that was just like, I've never had 
a lot of them are were based in the Philippines too, where like your bosses, you have no personal connection. You know nothing about them. They don't give a shit about you. you it's all numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so a handful of them were, were from people um, in the Philippines that were just like, I've never had a boss that's ever shared. Certainly not something that that's that personal about them. And, you know, I'm struggling with this. And like, it's amazing. Um, I just, I've, I've used my level of genuine comfort talking about my own struggles and failures um, and challenges as a, a leaping off point, a starting point for other people opening up. Um, I think I probably use it too much. Maybe it's a crutch and I, I, I'm just not good at maybe forging genuine connections with people in other ways. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about this and talking about it on the fly. I've never thought about it this way before, but that just seems like such a natural way to at least tell somebody like I'm acknowledging that I'm very imperfect and some of the things that I really struggle with and I'm um, comfortable having that conversation if you are interested as well. So I like it. Yeah, maybe it helps, especially you can balance it. And there are going to be some people who don't respond at all to it. Yeah. It's okay. And yeah, that's funny because when I first started doing it, I think I must have done it once and seen success with it. And I was like, oh, this can be a tool that I can use. And then did it again and like nobody gave a shit. And then it, I, I probably had to work through the fact that like maybe I was doing this more for myself than really anybody else and didn't like that I got no, you know, no response really from it um, and needed to adjust from that. But I, that's one of my... I would say the things that has been the most helpful the last couple of years is that maybe the five-ish years prior to that, I was stuck in this phase of my social group was uh, narrowing more and more and more. And growing up, you know, high school, I was super extroverted, tons of friends. Um, And so again, I was trying to deal with, do I still want that many friends? You know, trying to claw back what I used to have and that might not even be what I want. Um, and was like struggling to make new friends sometimes and not, not just accepting like I don't need as many people in my life. I don't need everybody to like me. All those things that I think everybody has to come to terms with. Um, but uh, one of the big things that I have really, I think, accepted is like if you put yourself out there expecting people to have a specific response, you're going to be disappointed constantly. Mm-hmm. And if instead you're just like, Hey, I'm going to put this out there and then I'm going to walk away like either literally or figuratively and be pleasantly surprised if I hear from anybody else, you know, about this because they're interested in talking about it or whatever. Um, it's so freeing. Um, and I, everybody, nobody does anything without a selfish motive to some degree, even the most charitable people, like they're doing it because to them it's very rewarding to be charitable. And I'm not discounting what they're doing. I'm just saying that's why like everybody does everything is for selfish motives. But um, still, it's like if you can just lower your expectations of returns on the things that you put out there, it makes it much more rewarding to just put yourself out there and then just walk away and just whatever comes of it comes of it. All right, should we wrap up for real? <laughs> Been going for a long time. Yep. This is fun though. Yeah, this was fun. I love you, Brooke. I love you too. Appreciate Thanks you coming on. Yeah. yeah.